People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Greenwashed for the week with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us this Monday morning. For listeners, our number to text in is 2057 and your feedback is much appreciated at inbox. At, re- at the rate realitycheck.radio. I got that right, Don, didn't I? You did. You did. But, you know, Jasper, if you got it wrong, I can imagine it's because you've had such a lazy week. You probably haven't done much. You're not tired. You're not exhausted. You haven't been to any meetings. You've just had a week on the sofa. I have literally no idea what to do with my time, Don. It, you know, it hangs on. Hangs on me heavy. I, I think it does. I And listeners, I'm being facetious. Jasper doesn't have many minutes left in a day and take the day at at least 18 hours. So uh, I don't know how she does it, but she does. And um, we're all pad her arm. Lots of caffeine. Sleep, as I keep saying, is overrated and caffeine is underrated. Oh, there you go. Uh, but hey, we had some good feedback, didn't we, this week? We won't go through too many of them, but... Um, uh, yeah. The one from Mike basically said, can't believe how many, how we get uh, good interviewees on our show and love the uh, interview with Sean Rush. And um, basically, short forming, he basically saying his depth of knowledge was fantastic. So we thought that too. And uh, I don't know whether he got through the uh, hoops at the act, um, off the act list. I have no idea, but I imagine the act party list that he was standing for Uh will come out soon. So all the best to Sean, but thanks for your feedback, Mike. Absolutely. And we also had somebody email us, Gary, I just put and on. I've been listening to your podcast. I find it very informative. My friends and I are having a local council meeting at the end of the month, and we are putting together some information for them about smart cities. Could you also please send us the hard road to the new world order? and any other documents on the social, I think you mean the sustainable development goals, Gary. And yep, that should be in your mailbox as I speak. 
Uh, I am glad the podcast we did, the show we did on speaking about how, you know, we have councils like the Auckland Council website referring to the Club of Rome and the hard road to the new world order. It's it's all out there in print for anyone who cares to, you know, dig a bit deeper. Yeah, and, and you know, as much as... Um... Some people would say social media is um, full of rubbish and you know, it's full of conspiratorial sort of uh, output. Uh, don't believe that, but be a bit uh, researched and you'll find much a lot of stuff on different platforms. It doesn't have to be Facebook. There's plenty of platforms where you can seek out the information that that you desire, Gary. Uh, it's all there. It's all there. And it's been written for years, but we've been a bit lazy. Uh, understanding it until recent years. So, uh, Don, you remember you got a bit of grief about that last year from stuff when you had come on VFF on the program <laughs> and quoting from that stuff article, which was about why were so many voices for freedom people at a farming protest. It spoke about you saying that earlier this <laughs> week. Prominent VFF member, Southland Dairy Farmer Jasreed Boparai, interviewed ex federated farmers president Don Nicholson in his interview. Don, you detailed your belief that Marxism was being deployed globally via the UN and suggested we were in, they were enslaving humanity. Your interview, Don, invoked proper, popular villains like the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, as tentacles of the same globalist system. You're such a conspiracy theorist. Oh, shucks. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm eating my words. I'm really uh, I'm feeling sorry. Uh, who should I say sorry to? Charlie Mitchell. <laughs> the usual suspect. Uh, <laughs> funny, funny. Oh, there's a few of them, but hey, they have a right. They have a right to speak uh, or write their ideas and their agenda, and um, they certainly have one, and it's just different to mine. And mine is about principles and honesty and integrity and no self-interest. These guys seem to um, absolutely fall into bed with uh, a lot of self-interest and crony capitalists and the like. I. Yeah, but it wouldn't melt in their mouth. No, no. So they had they had a problem that time with VFF supporting uh, groundswell protests. Speaking of which, it seems uh, groundswell's balls sold like hotcakes at the field days before uh, they were stopped because those golf balls featured uh, some Labour Party leaders. I actually thought they should also have, you know, they should have been fair and had some of the other <laughs> parties as well. Oh, maybe, maybe uh, being uh, all inclusive and um, you know making sure diversity, equity, and inclusion was was done. They should have. Uh, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, why was Christopher Luxon missed out? Yeah, well, and you know, he would be a likely candidate. I mean, he's got a nice shiny head, a bit like a golf ball, perhaps. I don't know. Look, it's it was a it was a great bit of a it was a gimmick, and uh, isn't it sad when you can't have a laugh at? At other people's expense, especially when these people are in the public eye all the time. And when you are a politician, you are fair game to anybody. Um, but they took it. They, it was sounds like it was the uh, field days um, management and, and yeah, it took, took exception. Uh, so no doubt some uh, seriously loyal Labour Party or perhaps to the left, the Green Party person, um, went to the management and said it was unacceptable. But, gee, I need think they need to take a look at themselves and have a bit of a laugh occasionally. They sure do. 
They sure do. I mean, this is the least of the worries if there's some golf balls with their faces on it. Least of their worries. Um, a ground, groundswell and doing a good job highlighting the issues in farming circles. And I know that uh, we'll talk about it a bit later, but uh, the KPMG agribusiness agenda document came out as it does every year. I don't know why, actually, that we pay an accountancy firm or someone pays them to do it. But, you know, rural anxiety is at a very high level. And, of course, we know it is. Uh, it's not the first time it's happened like this, but the last six or seven years, it seems to have grown like topsy. And, you know, I I, I hate talking about it, but farmer suicides seem to be um, rising every year. You, they do. you just hear about it more often. And I know that could be overall society, but, yeah, we, we're in farming and we hear about it and it's never good. You think, how does that happen? And, you know, uh, if it's being caused by financial or just economic uh, hardship and, and the tension around it, that you never feel good enough. You're always being browbeaten by the media or by Greenpeace or someone else, the other Greens. You just get a bit sick of it and it drags you down. And um, no wonder that's the highlight of the the headline of the agribusiness agenda document, um, farmer or rural anxiety, mm-hmm. peak peak problem. My mailbox. As, 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 as it is in schools, um, teenage and young adult anxiety. We talked about it last week. The prescription rate for for drugs to try and temper anxiety has risen fifty seven percent in Southland in the last uh, six years. My mailbox today had a flyer uh, advertising Craig Wiggins. He's a well known rural mm. commentator. His visit to Atapri. And we've got a little cafe here that does, you know, the proprietors are really concerned about the community. They've they've arranged this and he's going to be talking about the same things, you know, mental well-being and so on and so forth. What's happening in the rural sector for listeners? I wonder how many are aware that if you are facing inflation of, you know, I think it's six point seven two percent rural New Zealand is facing an average of close to 17% inflation. Personally, I can tell you there are things on the farm right now that have gone up two times, three times in price over the last three years. And hey, I'm not even a farm owner. We're just farm workers here, my husband and I. And I often wonder, who would actually go into farming today, Don? Millions for, you know, two, three, four percent rate of return? On your investment? It's interesting. Over, If you look back over 100 years, Jasper, you'd find it balances out to be pretty, uh, it's okay. But mm. right now, it's awful. It's awful for the rate of return on investment. Uh, it's it's down into the little, you know, sub-zero, oh, less than one anyway. Um, and interestingly, I remember in 2007 was another very, very bad farming year, especially for sheep and beef farms. But on average that year, six cents in every farm gate dollar was retained by the farmer. And out of that, it's overall sectors. He had to pay their uh, their taxes, not that there would be many, um, and their uh, interest costs. And that's so all before drawings and capital repayments. So that year, 2007, was the worst in 50 for sheep and beef farmers. And uh, I remember it well. It was just an awful year. So look, farming is about, um, you know, the the fortunes ebb and flow. Mm. But the last thing we need, most of these costs 
yeah, some of them are market. I mean, the fuel costs, the fertilizer mm. costs, uh, the interest costs. Uh, you can argue that that was caused by um, government printing machine, spilling money into the community like drunken sailors mm. and uh, creating an inflationary aspect. And of course, then the uh, cash rate was put up. Uh, I think it's, is it how many times? It's it's, a, it's multiple times, isn't it? I can't it? Like, even keep counting. I think it's over 10 and it's it's headed high. So all those things have um, exacerbated the farming and effectively every New Zealanders, um, everyone talks about well-being since the prime former prime minister came to power, everything was about well-being. Being. <laughs> I mean, it was the exact opposite. I know, I know. That's, the that's exact how, opposite. That's how this uh, thing works. But, but you know, just, just <laughs> and kind, just in time. It's, yeah, <laughs> horrible. It's spoiled the meaning of those words for me, mm. kindness. Mm. But uh, you know, listeners, we we call this program greenwashed. And in some sense, it is more prevalent, the usage to refer to environmental greenwashing. But literally or figuratively speaking, greenwashed is when deceiving claims are made about something. So now let's from, you know, farm inflation, let's go to something that concerns all of us, town and country alike, bilingual road signs from NZTA or Wakakutahi, as they call themselves now. So NZTA is currently consulting on bilingual road signs. The consultation, looking at their website, which is still so far nzta.govt.nz, ends on Friday, the 30th of June, 5 p.m. So they have a whole series. They have 94 signs in the consultation document and dual signage and so on. Now, one would think that you know, the transport agency, its job is to look after the infrastructure, look after safety, and steer well away from social engineering. Would you agree, Don? Well, that's how I thought it would be. Um, you travel the world and uh, you don't find um, masses of confusion on road signs. Uh, mm. you, yet there is some international signage that is good for every country. It's not written. It's just logo type stuff. But um, having seen examples of these signs we're talking about in New Zealand, I think they look really cluttered, really awkward, really confusing, and likely to create um, some road safety issues. But maybe it's just me that I'm not quick enough on the uptake. I'm not sure. <laughs> so they have used, you know, in their consultation document, they're talking about the fact that there's so many other countries, they refer to Europe on more than one occasion as saying, you know, bilingual road signs have worked perfectly well. But when I look up statistics, 97% of the people who live in France understand French. 80% of people who live in Spain understand Spanish, right? So we are now talking of road signs in Maori and English, both. And in their FAQs, the frequently asked questions, they say, why is stereo placed above English? Well, they say that that is how they are going to honor the language and they consulted you know this organization called Tipuni Kokiri which is the government's principal policy advisor on Maori well-being and development and they said Tipuni Kokiri recommends that where Tereo and English cannot be displayed as an equal size text then Tereo should be more prominent 
because this recognizes the value of the language. Also, Vaka Kotahi, there comes the name, is of the view that Tireo needs to be promoted if it is to achieve equality with English in New Zealand. So Vaka Kotahi has decided its role is to promote Tireo to achieve equality with English in New Zealand. I don't know when it came into his brief, but for me, the fact that they have said, like in Europe, these are worked in France, Germany, Spain, but hey, close to 90%, 95, 97% of the population in those countries understands those languages. I come from India, Punjab, and Punjabi language there. The road signs have that, and English. Punjabi is first, but then 100% literally of Punjabis understand Punjabi, the ones who live in that state. But when you go to New Delhi, which is the capital, it's suddenly, it's back to the national language, Hindi and English. But they have decided that this is what their role is. But even better, Don, is the research paper that is attached along with this, which talks about the fact that, uh, you know, what sort of research did they do to figure out bilingual traffic signage, international experiences and outcomes. And <laughs> they say that, you know, safety and commerce, safety and commerce seem to be the primary motivations for uh, bilingual signs. But yet, they say that when signs will be in Maori first, there'll be a cognitive load placed. A cognitive load placed on the drivers who are already negotiating roads with major potholes and all sorts of other issues and they can just deal with it because there'll be some sort of practical design issues that will help compensate for the cognitive load of looking and trying to figure out a sign with an unfamiliar language first. I Praise. It's unbelievable, uh, really, what that all means, cognitive. Um, yeah, I know that I, I said before, perhaps I'm going to get all totally confused because there's so many words. Um, it It's a crazy um, scenario, really. I, I'd love to know who's getting the contracts to make the signs, erect the signs, take the old signs down. Um, I want to know the cost of all this um, virtue signaling. Look, um, Maori certainly if they want to uh, speak their language and they want to do Tireo, I, I get really annoyed where um, some of my colleagues think speaking Tireo is smart, you know, a few words they know. I just I just don't buy that. It, to me, is the ultimate virtue signaling. And it, uh, What blows my mind is this is an organisation that has decided its role is to do this. And NZTA, hmm. we remember they have more than what, I think tripled their communication advisor than this time. Oh, yeah. They are... Yeah all things about climate change, all their robes advertised. But there's a gem hidden in the 39-page research paper that they've attached to this consultation that states, where cultural safety is under threat, not road safety, yeah. where cultural safety is under threat, such as when an indigenous language is under the threat of extinction, the public good aggregate may demand that small decrements in physical safety should be ranked below cultural needs. I would yeah. have thought every person, regardless of their ethnicity, would want safe roads first before cultural uh, oh. safety. 
What does uh, cultural safety even mean? Honestly, oh, it's, I... it's wearisome, this stuff. It really is. And um, sadly, there's so many in the Wellington Beltway that subscribe to it. Uh, you know, it 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 adds complexity. It adds cost. Uh, everything's got to have um, sort of some recognition to Titariti. Uh, you know, it never was in the parlance 20 years ago. It's just grown like Topsy in the last few years, completely uncosted. But and here they're willing to endanger the public, Don. Most yeah, things yeah, I disregard. Yeah. They're willing to endanger the public. Imagine they say, so the expressway, vast majority of people will understand that. And then the alternate for it is T. Ara Puaki. What is that achieving when you can't even afford to fix potholes? And what do you mean that cultural safety needs to be ranked above oh, physical safety? It, it is dystopian. It, well, it is dystopian. And like you've just said, uh, where's, where's the value here? We've got other things that are more pressing, you would have thought, but apparently not. Apparently all this virtue signaling doesn't cost anything. It just You just do it. It's it's the right thing to do. I, I mean, I've got a real problem with... Uh, uh, I can't even think of the name, but where supposed Maori sciences are equal or even more dominant than, you know, what has been known to be real science or, you know, investigative science uh, done over centuries by very intelligent, um, well-meaning people. I'm not saying that Maori aren't intelligent. I'm just saying if they think they've got the mortgage on science, uh, you know, God help us. We had, uh, Jill and I had done this uh, webinar on the UN SDGs, and in one of them, we had dealt with just education. And there was this research paper from, I believe it was from Harvard. Yes, I believe it was from Harvard, where it was the fact that maths is very racist. It's got a colonial uh, whole idea of a right or a wrong answer. This binary nature of maths is what was uh, driving Black, African-American students away from mathematics and it had become a white dominated uh, you know field <laughs> oh, well when jane fonda came out about a week ago and said that everything in the world uh, everything about climate change was white man's problem you know, mm. it was caused by white men mm. um you know that the world's gone crazy uh mm. how dare she when she mm. has made her entire life mm. out of um out of the efforts of others willing to mm. pay for her um her entertainment uh, mm. output. I mean, they, these people just need to wake up. We, the Reality Check Radio, it's a really good forum to uh, just put the stuff on the table. Because yeah, because this for me, have, this is greenwashing. Absolutely, this is an agency going well beyond well, its remit, wasting taxpayer dollars, and actually at the end of it, compromising physical safety. Unacceptable. I, I could uh, absolutely it is, but for uh, our last facetious comment i could argue that there's many maori place names in new zealand and i think i live in one i shouldn't mm. say i think i do live so in one. do i but i want to have um english names on all the signs <laughs> sorry is that too much to ask it probably is i don't i'm quite happy with the maori name it, it's where i live it's never occurred to us yeah i'm very happy with it uh and i know what it means and um but it doesn't oh. need to be written on a road sign Honestly, at this time when, you know, it's a case of people struggling to put fuel in the car, food on the table, roof over their heads, mortgages. Well, this is what we are spending money on, you know. 
I, well, look, I, I found a little gem this week too. I mean, you're finding gems all the time, but my little gem was um, it was put out by the ACT Party, actually, so I'll give them the kudos. But MPI, Ministry for Primary Industry, since 2017 has increased its staffing by 1,277 people or 52%. Uh, and that is at a cost of 130 million. Each av- the average salary in MPI uh, is 101,700. My goodness, yeah. um, I would just you know we about 2017 was when the Mbovis outbreak I think started. It's mm. obviously been a godsend to the mm. employment of people at MPI. I remember a couple of years ago when David Parker was asked that you know. Is it justified for NZTA, Pakakatahi, to have 88 communication staffers and they spent $10,000 on those big zero road to zero sign? What is it worth? He couldn't answer. From 2017, NZTA communication staff has gone from 32 to 88, out of whom 65 were earning 100,000 or more. And this was last year. Yep, it's uh, and we wonder why we've got a, a some sort of uh, balancing act going on in the um, in the government accounts. It's yes. seriously out of control. Seriously out of control. And Tom, so, would you introduce our first guest? Yeah. So after the break, we'll be speaking with um, Patrick Phelps. Now, Patrick's a um, real enthusiastic speaker. He's uh, part of Minerals West Coast. In fact, he's the CEO of it. It's a trust. But he uh, he will inform us a bit more about how mining and conservation um, can go hand in hand because mining is basically a very small part of the conservation estate or even on the public estate for that matter. Um, and then he talks about energy. He talks about how he's um, sort of a passionate West Coaster and uh, how, like I've said often, we all use the environment every moment of every day, and it's a matter of um, how we moderate that. Absolutely. So look, after the break, we'll be listening to Patrick. Yep, stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR, um, Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. And this afternoon or today, we're most uh, grateful to have Patrick Phelps from Minerals West Coast join us. Patrick's got a long history of um, of public engagement on things mining uh, that some of you may have uh, noted on YouTube. But aside from that, he's um, also got a long CV um, and some very interesting aspects to it. And so welcome, Patrick. Welcome to RCR Greenwashed. And we'd love to know, basically, your life, what's and all to date, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of mining and conservation. Right. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know how long you've got, but anyway, yeah, hi there, uh, Don and Jess Breit. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, name's um, Patrick. I was born just um, in Hokitika on the West Coast, about early 1990s, and I don't remember it particularly well, but at the time my family were running a gold claim just south of the Hokitika River on a block of land that they'd purchased about, oh, I think my sister, my, I've got a few siblings. My sister is about three years older than me, wasn't born in the house that I grew up in, but that's on the land that um, 
that they ended up mining about 100 hectares now a bit of that was mined a lot of it's still got quite a lot of native bush on it actually got a qe2 covenant and part of that's in pasture now but that was mined up until about the late or oh, mid to late 90s and then they mined uh, my father and grandfather who had Phelps mining along with my mother and my grandmother um, they mined a few other places around the west coast as well up around Westport and then late 90s price of gold I think when from memory from what dad tells me when they moved down to the coast for all of 18 months and still there 30 odd years later um, to get into mining the price of gold was about $600 US an ounce so I don't know how you adjust that for inflation but it was lucrative at the time about 10 years later when they got out it was down to about $300 an ounce so you know at, at the time they got out of it um I guess it just made sense and then mum and dad actually took my three siblings and I I'm the youngest of the four of us to live in Japan for about a year so I've still got some memories of that I turned six over there came back um high uh primary school and high school in Hokitika and then moved off to Canterbury later on to um study journalism and then worked as a reporter for national radio for a bit in Christchurch a brief stint down in Dunedin, a year or so working for Silver Fern Farms, sort of doing marketing and communications work. And I guess that period of my life from sort of high school through to university, early career, punctuated by a few sort of stints um, working on dairy farms, worked in a workshop where, uh, called Excavator World when I was at high school where they used to pull old machinery apart, um, sell spare parts of diggers and things like that. Uh, what else did I do? Oh, a couple of seasons tour guiding in South Westland as, as well, which is probably what instilled an appreciation, I guess, for New Zealand's biodiversity and that sort of stuff, um, which I think is quite helpful with the work that I'm doing at the moment. And then went and spent a couple of years living over in China when I got a scholarship to go over there and study Mandarin. And so that was from about 2017 through to early 2019. And um, I was back for my sister's wedding sort of in the summer of 2019, January and February and I had a I had a summer job just trying to save up some money for my last semester and to fund a bit of travel at the end of my studies in China, working just helping with maintenance at Silverfin Farms, Hokitika. So if anyone has ever worked at a freezing works, you'll know that doing the cleaning and maintenance is probably one of the least glamorous jobs you can have there. Not and that's quite a stiff competition to be fair. But um, the yeah, and at the time I saw a job advertised on the back page of the Grey Star just two or three weeks before I went back to China for minerals west coast and i was sort of quite intrigued by that there was a lot going on in the industry at the moment and at, at, at the time sorry and i'd been keeping a bit of an eye on that from china mainly just because i had a you know I'd, I'd never directly worked in mining or anything like that other than geez maybe a very brief stint when dad gave me a bit of a run on the dump truck before he realized that probably wasn't the best idea and um and then yeah so this job advertised was interested in it purely as a as a west coaster and as someone who was i guess a miner's son and just wanting someone that could advocate i guess for the mining industry among other things at, at the time some of the current government's policies were starting to look quite frightful for the sector in terms of you know the ramifications of the zero carbon acts no new mines on conservation land all of that sort of stuff um and yeah having an affinity with the sector and i guess a background in journalism and things like that i was just interested in it so i put my name forward and um yeah, long story short, by the time I got back from China in August 2019, um, I had that sort of lined up as a job to come back to, which was which was quite handy, actually, because prior to that, my plan had really been to just come back, get any job that I could get in Hokitika for 12 months and then shoot off traveling around the world. But by that stage, COVID had read its ugly head, so I don't really think that would have um, worked and I'd possibly still be at the freezing works right now if that had been the case. So, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, 
or the West Coast uh, gain, you might say, because certainly uh, provincial New Zealand is under under the pump, and you do mm. need patriots. You need to, you do need provincial patriots to uh, to sort of be looking out for uh, for their for their region. And so, could you just tell us a little bit about Minerals West Coast and what it actually is and how it's funded, um, its membership? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's an industry body, effectively. So anyone that's familiar with the likes of federated farmers or, you know, which is voluntarily member funded by people who value that the work it does advocating for the farming industry, it's it's much the same model, basically. We, we do the work through Minerals West Coast. So I report to a group of trustees that are elected by the membership. Sometimes it's just a case of who sneezes at the AGM and gets told that they're doing a term as a, as a trustee. But um you know, that made up of, you know, representatives from different areas of the sector. And then the membership is effectively, you know, anyone from, I mean, our membership comprises sort of one-man band, black sanders who mine the black sand deposits of the West Coast for a bit of gold, right through to, you know, medium-sized, small to medium-sized alluvial gold mining operations, smaller locally owned um, coal mining companies, quarries, et cetera, all the way through to publicly listed companies like Bathurst Resources, which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, but all of its mining operations are in New Zealand and its head offices in Wellington. Um, and so, yeah, there's a real breadth and depth of of members there, which is really good because that way, you know, we get input from all the different parts of the industry. And there's different scale, there's different minerals, but fundamentally it's all of the same business model really, which is producing things that people value, which come out of the riches of the earth, basically. And if you're not digging it out of the ground, you are either growing it, um, you know, in the ground, or at most you're feeding it to an animal after you've grown some pasture or something like that. But there's really no other way to produce things from raw materials. And even recycled materials are just a continuation of that spectrum, really. So yeah. And and on in addition, I guess, to the people who are directly in the business of mining, we've got you know, geologists, consultants, engineering companies that produce gold screens, um, transporters that cart fuel or other things for the industry, um, all, all that sort of stuff, really. So anyone with skin in the game um, that thinks they'll benefit from being a member is a member, effectively. So, yeah. Well, uh, all credit to you. And uh, um, it's interesting, you you speak like I do, eh, Jaspreet? Um, I was thinking the same thing. Effectively, that, you know. effectively there's nothing. Uh, mm. Without the harvest of the land, the sea, mm. uh, or the scenery, effectively, uh, we all enjoy the fruits of that every moment of every day, and everything we have, our whole daily intake, is mm. is fated by um, the harvest of of these sorts of things. So, it's great to have a young man, mm. in my opinion, understand that because man, it's been a battle that I've yeah. been fighting uh, for a long time. So. Um, you know, and it's interesting. I don't know if you watch um, uh, Sky Australia, sort of, or Sky News. No, that's wrong. Just Sky mm-hmm. TV yeah. and the, the gold rush programs and the opal mining, oh, and the yeah. gold and all. Yeah. And you think, you think uh, it's 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 reality TV. I understand all mm. that. But if yeah. you look at, at the Yukon or wherever they are up in uh, uh, Parker Schnabel and his mates, mm. they got the big machines and they just seem yeah. to rip in without uh, there's no one really talking about how much paperwork mm. and and uh effort you have to get to or go through to get past go. And yeah. uh, can you can you explain that process a little bit more? And then uh sorry, Jasper, I know I've hinted your question, but um that's that's a pretty biggie to let let's know how you get to do mining on the conservation estate. 
or even yeah. on private land for that matter. Yeah, well, I mean, it's whether it's conservation land or private land, it's it's much the same formula, I guess. So first things first, the majority, not all, some are privately owned through, you know, various anachronistic things that have sort of grandfathered down. But by and large, most of the minerals that exist in New Zealand's exclusive economic zone are the property of the Crown, effectively. And so if you want to obtain the commercial rights to those minerals, you have to apply for them um, from the Minister for Energy and Resources, who's the relevant minister. And then you will be allocated either a prospecting, an exploration or a mining licence and or permit, I should say, and those permits allow for those things, but only in a commercial sense. And then you'll pay a tribute um, to the Crown with that licence. But that's really just a commercial licence. It's a bit of a misleading name. People will hear, oh, there's a mining permit, but it doesn't actually permit mining. Um, and then from there, having obtained the rights to the resources, you then have to obtain access to the land by way of an access arrangement. Now, if that's with a private landowner, um, Don, Jasper, if you've got a farm and there's something under it that I want out of the ground, and by the way, I can get that permit without your approval because that permit's no good to me unless either of you wants to give me access to actually dig the ground up and get to it, um, I would then have to come along and make an offer to you as a landowner that makes it worth your while. So basically, I'll have to guarantee that um, if I destroy any fences, if I dig up any pasture, everything's going to be as good as it was before I touched it. And then on top of that, for the hassle of the inconvenience, you're probably going to want to be not just no worse off, you want, you're going to want to be better off as a result of that mining. So, so uh, that's how the access arrangements struck. And if it's on publicly owned land, most often um, conservation land, because conservation land takes up about a third of all of New Zealand, um, you'll have to get permission from the relevant minister, which is the Minister of Conservation and the Minister of Energy and Resources as well is also a factor in that decision-making process. Um, and when you strike a deal with the Minister of Conservation, it has to be in a way that the minister um, has regard to the purposes for which the land is held. And in this day and age, that'll generally come in the form of providing pest control that will mean biodiversity will be better off than it would have been in the absence of mining that you can argue right how many of this bird is how, is worth how many of that frog or snail etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know that's that's the process that you get consultants and you go through the environment court for and all of that sort of stuff and then having got your um mining permit your access arrangement you'll then also need a resource consent from the local uh, regional council to handle the things that resource consents handle whether it be noise or dust or discharge to water etc cetera, etc cetera. and if you're likely to have any particular impact on any wildlife let's say there might be bats roosting or potentially roosting in a tree or something like that you'll have to get a wildlife permit under the wildlife act so that's at least four pieces of legislation um, if you're mining on public conservation land that you've got to satisfy and then there still might be other considerations under heritage new zealand if you're digging through old miners workings that predate 1900 and that sort of stuff it's quite a i mean if you think listening to that or describing it's exhausting imagine going through a two or three year process just to get access you know to the resource and that sort of stuff so yeah there's there's, there's quite a lot to navigate it, well, it sounds like quite a rigmarole. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't sound like yeah. easy. But yeah. uh, tell us uh, what, Patrick, what does your role involve? You are a spokesperson for the industry. Is that it? What What yeah. do you do in an average day, average week? Oh, my average day or week can be quite varied. I mean, a lot of my work is public engagement. And so that doesn't just involve, you know, talking to people. That That's a big part of it. But a lot of the work is actually in doing the research, actually looking up the information, seeing what 
data, et cetera, is available to actually inform any views that I might then go out and and share with the wider public, engaging with the industry to see what, you know, pe- people within the industry to see what they want me to be doing and that sort of stuff as well. Um, and then, yeah, a big part of it is trying to distill that information down. I mean, without um, drawing too long a bow or being too liberal with a metaphor, I mean, I think a lot of the work is actually much the same as mining. You know, there's this data and this information out there that is basically a raw material that needs to be gathered, it needs to be processed, it needs to be distilled down into something that's actually usable for people. And then having produced that information, you then have to go out and and get it to people or market it to people. And that can be done through mainstream media, you know, editing opportunity, engaging with television or radio, online, um, print media and that sort of stuff to just try and communicate with as many people as possible, Um, social media, uh, then, and I guess in a slightly more official sense, when the government's looking at changing or introducing legislation, they'll put out, and people will have been exhausted by these if they've dealt with them, you know, consultation yeah. or policy documents and submissions and things like that, which can feel like an exercise in futility. But if you don't do it and it's not on the public record, you know, you've got really nothing to fall back on. So that's, and sometimes that's, I mean, there were things that I've probably submitted on three or four times within a two-year period or something like that, as if the politicians or their officials think that they're going to get a different answer if they ask the same question in a slightly different way. Um, So that's engaging with politicians and civil servants. And then there's just direct meetings and engagement. And on on top of that, part of it's just bringing the industry together as well. So a few weeks ago, middle, oh, about a month ago, actually, now we had our annual forum. So we try and hold that in different parts of the West Coast. This year, we had it in Westport, and we had about 160 or 70 people from within the industry and people coming from as far as Western Australia actually to come to that. And that's that's a really, val- I mean, it's about two or three months of work for me leading up to it. And then you right. do it for a day or two and then poof, it's gone and it feels very sort of anticlimactic in a way. Um, but it's it's a really valuable thing, I think, for people in the industry to be able to come together to hear what different people are doing, new projects that are on the go, how people are doing their work, you know, different methods for environmental remediation, what's happening with new markets, new products, et cetera. And, you know, it's also important that the industry is quite widespread, right? You know, you've got people from as far afield as Westport down to Ross on the West Coast, elsewhere in New Zealand, to just get everyone together in one room or town hall or something like that and have a few beers and have dinner together once a year is an incredibly valuable thing. So there's organising that. And then there's rats and mice, stuff, accounts payable, receivable, tidying up the minutes for trustee meetings and just general administration and clerical work and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's enough to keep me busy anyway. (laughs) Yes, yes, most definitely. And, you know, I can definitely, and Don and I, I think we can both vote for the fact that as time has gone on, farming is certainly getting harder. Don't be with feds and I just as a contract milker. How about mining? Mm -hmm. How has it changed the, you know, the political spectrum of it over the last few years? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's a it's a funny thing. I mean, I sort of think back to, and again, maybe I pay more attention to these things than I do, than I, you know, did five or 10 years ago. But I think when I went to China in 2017, the sort of, you know, ripe old age of 23, sort of sitting off on my OE, I, you know, climate change, for example, was an issue. It was talked about. Um, we didn't necessarily have the frequency of, you know, severe weather and that sort of stuff that it feels like we have, we've had in recent years, but also... It didn't feel like something that it was at the forefront of political discourse, whereas just about every party has got some sort of policy or other on climate change. Now, but you know, you go back 10 years ago or a bit over 10 years ago when, for example, Bathurst Resources set up their office in New Zealand. I don't know because I've been there when I've been in Wellington. And John Key came along and cut the ribbon on the office and, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
you wouldn't get a leader of a major party within 100 you know miles of a coal mine these days unfortunately um and despite the fact that you know coal mining was an essential service through all of the covid lockdowns along with the supermarket workers and the nurses and the healthcare workers and all of that sort of stuff but there's just there doesn't seem to be that acknowledgement within polite company i mean i think generally anyone that's involved in the business of doing anything now whether it's producing food producing minerals my parents have been dealing with probably over the last 10 years or so subdividing sections off of our you know land in Hokitika and that sort of stuff that just seems to be getting increasingly difficult and onerous and that sort of stuff and I I've got no issue with regulation in and of itself if it's actually improving an outcome but some of it's just bureaucracy that adds cost without actually making more timber or coal or gravel or milk or housing or whatever available so it adds cost without actually adding value and there, there are definitely things that have been beneficial you know you go back to the early 1990s the crown minerals act was introduced and the resource management act was introduced and under that legislation there's no way that some of the environmental issues that have come about from mining historically say to Arahar or tui mine um up in the i think it's in the waikato um you know, there's no way that could happen now under the legislation that exists. But people remember those things from the past more than they actually notice that the legislation's changed to improve, you know, based on what's happening. I mean, another one, for example, Pike River never should have happened if we'd actually had the appropriate legislation. And since 2015, Workplace Health and Safety Act being passed, for all of the issues people might have with that legislation, it does mean that what happened at Pike River could never happen again in this country. And yet, you talk about the prospect of a new underground coal mine on the West Coast, which is currently under consideration, and people are very quick to invoke Pike River. And I, I find that a little bit frustrating because Pike River was a badly run mine and people didn't know what they were doing. And yet we had the Cave Creek disaster on the West Coast when the viewing platform collapsed on conservation land. Well, we've still got viewing platforms on dock land, but following a coronial inquiry, We've learned from that, and the practices that led to that don't actually occur now and couldn't happen again. We had Erebus, which I think is one of New Zealand's largest disasters. We didn't just shut down Air New Zealand as a result of that. We had an inquiry, we learned from it, and we moved on from there. So I think people can be a bit selective with their memory sometimes, and that that's what I guess I find quite frustrating in some ways. But yeah, anyway, sorry, look like you've got a, a no, question. And with you, you've travelled in China extensively, yeah. and I would have expected seen a few coal mines yeah. I come from India and between China and India, mm. about 80% of the world's coal mines are in these two areas. They yeah. don't seem to be tying themselves up in knots because there's always a trade-off, isn't there? Energy and living standards. Yeah, massively. And I mean, um, no, in my, I mean, in my time in China, I never actually did see okay. any, any mines, unfortunately. I mean, I wish I had. And if I'd, if I'd done the work I do now <laughs> before going to China, I probably would have made a point of, of, of seeking some out. But, you know, when I was living there, one thing that I used to find almost unfathomable was the fact that I think in the entire time that I was in China, I experienced one power cut when a transformer blew out in the um, housing block that I lived in, which is in and of itself a hard thing to describe to anyone in New Zealand that hasn't been to a dense sort of suburb in Asia, just how sort of dense the housing was. But the And that was just a result, I think, of a tree falling on it or possibly a bit of a mishap with some construction work that was going on. But the the way that it, I lived in Nanjing, which was a city of 9 million people, down the road was Shanghai with 20 or 30 million people. I used to find it, for all of the chaos in um, China that I could observe sometimes, and I had a very good friend of mine, a classmate of mine uh, by the name of 
Pras Krishlani, he was from India and he said, Patrick, if you think China's chaotic, you, you need to come to India. You'll love it sort of thing, you know. And um, the, the thing that I found incredible over there was actually that almost all of the time, in fact, I, water ran down the pipes and electricity was just there and that sort of stuff. And that's all on the back of coal, really, in both China and India. You know, I mean, I think, you know, we were talking just before we started the interview, Jasper, and the, you only have to go back to 2010 and electricity was only available to 70% of India's population. And in the past 10 years or so, that's got up to 100% all on the back of coal. Now, whatever you want to say about what that's done for the world's emissions or climate change, et cetera, you can't deny that that's improved the living standards of of people. And and I think that's the real catch-22 that we're facing. There's this global, fairly broad consensus globally that there's a need to decarbonise. There's also a unanimous view that no one wants to give up the energy availability that exists in developed countries. There are still a lot of countries. I think there's something like, it's about 800 million people around the world still don't have access to a reliable supply of electricity that still have to cook over wood for their heating and for their cooking and all that sort of stuff. Um, And so in the undeveloped parts of the world, there are many people who want to attain the standard of living that exists in countries like New Zealand. But in countries like New Zealand, people want to retain the standard of living that we have and don't want to forego it. So, you know, we, we are in a difficult situation. And yeah, a friend of mine came over and visited me not long before I left China. And he said, Jeepers, you sort of, you know, obviously you still want to recycle and walk and bike a bit and that sort of stuff, but it does put in context what we're trying to achieve here versus what's happening in other countries. So, yeah, anyway. Well, the the, uh, low energy costs and and available energy costs, uh, available energy is fundamental to having um, civil um, society and a society that is is healthy and... Mm. and, um, has stuff you know like education and security so if you try to diminish low-cost energy my biggest fear at the moment in new zealand is that for all the decarbonization push um, i think we could be heading to higher energy costs now Mm. i hope i'm wrong significantly higher Mm. energy costs but i can't say that with surety but um you know and i used to be involved in the electricity sector uh, and i think it's um it's well placed to make a make a fair bit of cash out of the decarbonisation. But yeah. but in saying that, I do worry that the cost of it for mums and dads in New Zealand, if it sheets home to mums and dads as a as a significant extra, then I think there'll be some resistance. Yeah. And I'm I think one of the really difficult things too for for me is that, you know, if you know, if if climate change was just left to run rampant, if we just become indifferent to greenhouse gas emissions and we just let it rip. People who are living in more marginal parts of the world in terms of climate and availability will suffer. People living in low-lying areas or where poor tend to be housed, which tend to be in the least desirable places because the market value for properties lower there will be impacted. But if we get this transition to a lower energy society and energy sector wrong, you know, for, for people who've got a bit more money you'll just reduce your discretionary income that you'd otherwise put towards luxuries or savings or investments. But people who don't have that shock absorber, basically, that can't decide, right, I was saving $1,000 a month, now I'm saving $800 a month or something like that. Whereas for other people, they don't have that buffer. It's just straight to basically, right, well, I'm spending all of my money on essentials, whether that's food, energy, getting to work and that sort of stuff. And as those costs start to go up, whether because the cost of food's going up because the cost production rises or the cost of energy goes up, something's got to give, basically. And it'll be the people who are on the lowest rungs economically that 
suffer the most and don't actually have anywhere else to go. Anywhere else to go, they've got nowhere that they can actually cut uh, cut costs. Sorry, within their household budgets and things like that. And that that I think is the really scary thing because I don't know where people actually go from there. Hmm. So going um, on a bit, uh, you talk about emissions. I, I'd love to have your opinion on carbon capture and storage. Where hmm. does that fit in the equation for uh, the? sequestering of emissions effectively has it got a place or is it just um sort of some engineering um dream that's a bit virtuous uh i don't think it's i mean it's intuitive right i mean if you want to define the problem there's too much greenhouse gas going into the atmosphere that has a heating effect the planet's heating up so you either have to stop emitting or reduce the impact of those emissions through some sort of sequestration and we there's a tacit admission there i guess that that can happen already because of the way that the emissions trading scheme in New Zealand has been structured on the basis that the logic is carbon goes into the atmosphere, trees sequester carbon, therefore you can get credits from planting trees. So why not extend that pricing mechanism, which doesn't exist in New Zealand at the moment, to things like carbon caption, utilisation and storage, to at least allow that market market mechanism to work so that if it's cheaper to use some technology that someone develops than it is to plant a tree, then that's what we'll end up doing. I mean, the the technology is not there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something of a nirvana. It's up there with nuclear fusion, you know, as opposed to fission or whichever one it is, you know, modern um, nuclear. That's It's not there yet, but that's not to say that it can't be developed. And there's a strong – and if you put the right pricing mechanisms in place, I guess you strengthen the incentive for somebody to develop it. So, yeah, does carbon capture, utilisation and storage of a space? Maybe not yet, but I don't think there's any reason to rule it out in the future. So, so, yeah. so, so at the base of all this, though, there is a legislated market. Mm. Um, so I call yeah. it a faux, a faux market. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, and so what reality would we get from a legislated market? Because legislation can change. Legislation can, you know, if the carbon price went to a few hundred dollars a tonne, um, we definitely know as mums and dads uh, that our electricity price is going to go through the roof. Yeah. Um, mums and dads really need their carbon price at zero and, a, and um, a voluntary market would be the best test. A legislated market is not a very good test. That's I'm positing that as an angle. Mm. Yeah. Um, what, would, what would your response be to that? I, I think the most efficient way of dealing with any form of pollution, whatever form that takes, whether it's carbon dioxide or, you know, discharges into water, the most desirable thing to do is to price that pollution. If, if you want to deal with pollution, that's the most efficient way to deal with it, because that way the consumers can effectively decide one of two things. If it's worth just producing that pollution and having the good or service that you fundamentally desire, then people will pay for that to happen. If people don't want that to happen and they'd rather buy other products insofar as substitution or other methods are available, then there's an incentive there to produce that product in a way that you can reduce the pollution. Um, I, I take your point on it being a faux market or a legislated market. When you look at the way that markets work for other things, not necessarily pricing in what people would call you know, externalities or neighbourhood effects and things like that, the cost of producing milk, let's say, because um, we're probably all fairly familiar with that. There's the cost of the rent for the land, um, or if you own the land, you should sort of probably figure out what the cost would be if you were renting out to someone else, because someone might be a better farmer than you are. But you know, there's the there's the there's the capital cost of the land, the other assets. There's the labour input of having someone tend to the fields and milk the cows. There's the cost of your livestock and that sort of stuff. And then 
the cost of producing that plus some margin is basically how you get milk to market, whereas we've effectively decided there is the cost of those emissions going into the atmosphere and people run that figure anywhere between $50 US a tonne and $500 US a tonne, take your pick. Um, we're going to put that in place and then we're going to say, right, if you want to emit, that's the cost of doing so. Where the issue comes, I think, is that, um, and I have mentioned this in things that I've published before, according to the, I think it's the World Bank, I'd have to go and check the exact source for it, but it was a reasonably credible source, there's only about 22% of emissions all around the world have actually got some form of a price on them. So over 80, well, about 80%, 78% of all the emissions in the world don't have a price on them. So going into the atmosphere at with no recognition of the financial cost of that, among those 22% of emissions that are priced, which includes New Zealand, the average price for those emissions is about $3 US a tonne. Now, New Zealand's price at you, I don't know the exact exchange rates off the top of my head, but if we're sitting at about $60 or $70 New Zealand, I'm going to go somewhere between $30 and $45 US a tonne, which means we're paying somewhere in the margin of sort of 15 times the international price. And that international price only applies to 20-ish percent of emissions anyway. So... What that means, if you're not just talking about percentages and numbers, is it means that as it gets more expensive to do things in New Zealand that have a carbon cost component, insofar as things can be sent to other countries, that's the incentive that's going to happen. I mean, you know, we see that where there's a large component of unskilled labour in a product, you can't sell labour at New Zealand at any rate below $20 an hour now. So if there's something that needs to be produced with a labour input of below $20 an hour and probably including the shirt that I'm wearing, the $6 shirts I get from Posty Plus every sort of six months and that sort of stuff, they will be produced in places like Bangladesh where there's lower cost labour. If there's somewhere in the world where it's cheaper to emit, and I, I find it really difficult to see milk um, or beef or anything going in a, you know, you can't shift the farms overseas. But what I could see happening is Fonterra deciding jeepers, it's pretty expensive to add value to products here. We'll just produce a concentrate or a powder and then send that overseas so that the, the energy component, the cost component can be added in another jurisdiction where it doesn't cost so much, you know, to emit basically. So that that I think is going to be the long run. I don't actually remember the exact answer that you asked, uh, question that you asked on, but hopefully that sort of gives you something to go off. Well, I know it's good because uh, we don't have this discussion. I mean, uh, the standard answer we'd get back from uh, from the marketers and processing mm. companies, or, or or the Fonteras and the meat companies mm. of the country as well. But where it's around branding, it's around branding. We'll have these new credentials that will um, give us a massive uh, massive market advantage. Um, I've never heard anyone dollarize that for me. Um, mm, it's no. easy to say they just can't define it. But no. it's because it gets access. They say it gives us an easier way of negotiations. Maybe yeah, it does. Maybe it does. But I mean, and to me, that's something that if the owners of Fonterra have customers overseas and that's what they dictate, then the buyer and the seller find each other on you know mutually beneficial terms. But again, I I'm just a bit skeptical of that for, for a couple of reasons. One of which is, you know, in the couple of years that I spent in China, you see these beautiful gold blocks of West Gold, you know, um, from West Mill with 56 Livingston Street on there. And as someone from, I'm not a particularly patriotic person. I don't take a lot of pride necessarily in being a New Zealander, but I am probably a bit tribal when it comes to being a West Coaster. And, you know, to see something from the butter factory or the milk factory in the town that I grew up in all the way off in these offshore markets, you sort of think, geez, that's quite exciting. But then you actually look at it 
and there's a nice gold block of Kerry gold from Ireland sitting next to it. And there's all these other blocks of butter from other countries in the world. And basically, people in China, I don't know other markets particularly well, people in China trust imported products more than they trust their own. So that's a reason those products are on the market for people who have got the ability to pay for them. But they're all at pretty much the same price. Now, if you double the price of that block of butter compared to its counterparts from other countries, most consumers aren't going to pay for it. Um, The other one around market access, I mean, the richest consumers in the world, off the top of my head, would be in Western Europe and North America. And both of those are countries that are yet to strike any meaningful free trade agreement with New Zealand and give us any market access. Most of the animal proteins that we export go to the developing markets in Asia, where you've got growing middle classes, but primarily people who prioritise safety, quality of food and cost over any warm fuzzies that they might get from buying, you know, a block of butter or a pound of cheese or whatever else at any particular price. So, yeah, it's insofar as there's market access or a premium customer, surely it's only for those wealthier or richer discerning consumers and markets that we don't have much access to anyway. So, yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's the line that's always used, Patrick. They um, they are going for the discerning uh, customer around the world, and uh, I remember um, the middle class of China was going to be such a huge uh, mm. huge consumer of New Zealand products, but but now we're back down to talking about we're only going after the most affluent mm. uh, clients, uh, the forty odd million people that we can feed with our with our produce. But that's as an aside. I mean, that's all good stuff. Um, mm. One of your videos I watched was on solar power and you're mm-hmm. quite um quite dubious about its merit in this uh in this country uh and yeah. you gave a very good you gave a very good um overview of it have, have you got a sort of synopsis of that and yeah I guess sort of, yeah i mean i'll try not to ramble on too long about it but it's effectively if you sort of boil it back to the root i'd Benjamin Franklin, the mythology is around Benjamin Franklin flying a kite and it getting struck by lightning or something like that in terms of when humans started to develop electricity. I don't recall all the ins and outs of it, but humans effectively started to utilise electricity, if you think about it, as a substitute for sunlight. When it was dark, we needed warmth, we needed light, and we needed something to cook with, and that's where electricity sort of you know started to get up and running. So the idea that we can somehow now start to use sunlight to reverse engineer a substitute for electricity, you know, in and of itself, that seems a bit counterintuitive, right? Um, the biggest problem with solar all around the world, but particularly in New Zealand, is that you get the most sunlight when you need electricity the least, and it's saturated at a very, very particular part of the day, right in the middle of the day, and usually in warm time. So you bring that to New Zealand in particular, we tend to use the most electricity on a dark, cold winter's night. We've got the most sunlight in the middle of the day on a warm, clear summer's day. Um, the other issue with New Zealand is that we've we've already got a lot of renewable electricity, um, the majority of which comes from, so if you take New Zealand's electricity supply, I'll just break it down, that might be beneficial. We get about 55, 60% comes from our hydroelectricity supply. Another 20% or thereabouts comes from our geothermal resources that we've got, mainly in the, well, only in the North Island, really, in the sort of Topol volcanic region. So that gets us up to about 75 or 80%. We get another roughly 5% that comes from wind, you know, which, and that's gone from nothing in the mid 90s through to, you know, 5% of the electricity supply today. And then there's this other 20% that we get from natural gas, um, 10, 15% comes from natural gas and roughly 5 or 10% comes from coal. But 
So you don't need solar power to try and get rid of or displace the renewable electricity that comes from hydro or wind or geothermal. You would only be using solar power if you were trying to displace coal and gas. But coal and gas are the only things that you can really fluctuate. You can hold a little bit in a hydro scheme and release it, you know, when you want a bit more of it. But there's not a lot of capacity there. Most of our, even though we have dams in New Zealand, most of our hydro schemes are effectively what you'd call run of river. The, the rivers run, the wind blows, the geothermal steams, you get electricity from it. But there's these peaks of demand throughout the day and also throughout the year. People get up in the morning, toasters, jugs go on, people cook breakfast, huge rush on hot water cylinders, they'll start going into overdrive. Um, industry starts to fire up for the day because not all factories run 24-7 and then sort of ebbs off a bit through the day and then sort of spikes back up again from about five o'clock at night. People come home from work, cook dinner, have showers, watch the television, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way that that happens, we, we can't make more wind blow or more water run when you've got this extra demand coming online. So the only way that you can actually get more electricity is to burn a bit more coal and gas at the moment. Now, the issue with solar power is it, it doesn't produce electricity at a time when any of that's happening. And then across the year, we've got the least output from hydro in the winter and the greatest demand for electricity. So that's when you need to top it up. So, you know, the, to do it with solar is just not really possible. It, it's And it can't really, and, and the other issue is with solar. So let's say you were to say, right, carte blanche, we're just going to bring more solar online. Solar would already be an economically marginal investment for any electricity company. So if I put a solar, you know, a whole heap of solar power online, I'm saturating a part of the market that doesn't really want my product anyway. Now, I've made it a little bit less marginal for you to now come and put a solar, um, you know, large-scale solar online, Don, but you might do it anyway if the government, you know, gives you a bit of taxpayers' money for it, but it's going to be a pretty close-run thing. Now, Jaspreet's next in the queue, and she's thinking, geez, this really isn't stacking up, but shit, I'll do it anyway because I've got a subsidy for it. But at some point, it's just not going to be worth anyone's while to put solar panels on their roofs or, you know, put a large um, farm online. And then people say, oh, well, if you had batteries or whatever, you know, you might be able to do more. The, the battery storage capacity just does not exist to, to do that. There was a report from Genesis Energy that said if you, this was just actually in one of their annual reports, um, 51% state-owned, by the way, and the government quite happily takes the dividend from the coal and the gas that they burn at Huntley, even though they won't necessarily brag about it. But they, you know, in one of the, in one of Genesis Energy's annual reports, they said that the cost of getting enough batteries to take Huntley out of circulation would be something like 140 Tesla Powerwall batteries per household, which is about $2 million a dwelling or something like that. I mean, you know, even if it's a million dollars per dwelling, you know, you can have that. It's still not going to be worth anyone's while to do it. So... Yeah, it's solar to me is if anything's the answer, I guarantee I, I would wager my house on the fact that it's not going to be solar anyway. So yeah, not in New Zealand, that's for sure. I I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I don't. And no. and we had we had Brian Leyland on a couple of months ago, and uh, right. he was talking about the um, the nameplate sort of capacity of solar yeah. um, comes down to about ten percent or eleven percent, I think it was yeah. on average over yeah. a year. Um, yeah. And the further south you go, it's going to be less, of course. Um, yeah. But and wind, uh, I think he talked about thirty seven or thirty eight percent of their nameplate capacity was their annual sort of output. So wind uh, blows in the night uh, mm. and does have some merit, uh, but I imagine the intermittency of everything is the problem. Reliable. Uh, yeah. Mm. yeah I was just, what was that, sorry, Jasper? 
the reliability. That's the main yeah. thing. When you want power, you need it to be reliable. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you turn a light switch on, you want it to be basically going. And with wind, I think, you know, there's definitely more to be said for wind. It's not as seasonally restricted as what solar is. Wind blows all year round. It does blow at night time. One of the biggest difficulties, I think, with wind is it can be windy sometimes and it may not be windy other times, but the the biggest issue that I can see with wind is the best wind resource is concentrated in the sort of lower North Island, Manawatu, Whanganui, those sorts of areas, wider upper. But you're really, if you start to build up more and more wind farms there, you're really banking on the weather of one particular part of the country. Now, you can put wind farms in other parts of the country, but there may not be a case for them being there. You know, there's the, you sort of have to look at different parts of the country as their own little cluster. Now, if there's a lot of hydro down around South and in Otago, putting a wind farm there to try and supply local areas that have already got a lot of cheap energy that's somewhat stranded in that part of the country anyway, isn't necessarily going to do that much good. And I mean, to, to even look at wind, if you, it's 5% of New Zealand's electricity supply. Since we built our first wind farm in the sort of mid-late 90s, I think 95, 96, the first turbine was commissioned, it's taken us over 25 years to get to a point where wind's 5% of our electricity supply and 1% of our total primary energy supply. So that's all the coal and gas we use in industry. That's all the petroleum we use in transport. So to try and get that to... 2% of primary energy supply, you'd have to take all the wind farms we've built in the last 25 or 30 years and do it again and again and again and again. And, and it's not just the consenting or the sensitivity that you might have to neighbours or biodiversity, but the other, this is more of an intuitive sort of feeling, but I'd have thought that all of the technically easiest wind farms have been built. You know, the best wind resources have already been exploited in the best possible location. Any future ones will surely be closer to the nesting area for some, you know, species of valued and protected bird or closer to a neighbourhood or on a more technically difficult, you know, hillside or something like that. So it's going to get harder to produce wind, I'd have thought, anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I'd i like to go back to mining now. I live not far from uh, Bathurst Mines, Ohio Nightcaps out here. Oh, yeah. And nearly every community fundraiser in that area there mm. seems to be some sort of contribution from the mines. Yeah. yeah, they have, you know, and they they supply very clear data on what are mm. they doing to water quality and yeah. how they are, you know, replanting the land back, putting it back, and so on. If you look, at least to me, and I'm not a technical person, mm. the footprint of mm. coal mines seems to be really small. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you think of so, what percentage of conservation estate do you think of New Zealand land would have mines disturbed? Yeah, well, conservation land I can say quite easily because I know that figure. So, in the last sort of well, since 1987, when the Department of Conservation was set up, mm-hmm. um, and the processes that have sort of existed since then, Conservation Act, and then early 90s Crown Minerals Act, Resource Management Act. The area of conservation land that's been disturbed by mining has been about three and a half thousand hectares, which it's good that I'm talking to farmers because you sort of understand what hectares are. So three and a half thousand hectares or thereabouts out of about 8.8, 8.9 million hectares, which is the entirety of the conservation estate. So to put that in a direct proportion, 0.04% or four hectares out of every 10,000. So 9,996 hectares not impacted by mining, if you like. Um, and if you look generally across all of New Zealand, the um, Bathurst 
mine in Southland that you mentioned, Takatimu, that's on privately owned farmland and I think also yep. on a bit of um, forestry land and that's the stuff, some of it I think council owned as well. Um, I would be surprised, I would, you know, to add it up in total, I'd, I'd go ballpark maybe 5,000 hectares maximum, maybe 6,000, under 10,000 hectares anyway. Gosh, so, you know, that is... Yeah, and, and and when I say disturbed, some of that's areas that have been mined but will have already been rehabilitated as well. So, yeah, and actually, probably the clear, well, not necessarily a conflict of interest, but just a disclaimer. So Bathurst, Chief Executive, is also the Chairman of um, Minerals West Coast, if anyone thinks I'm being too kind of Bathurst or anything like that. Um, but the, I actually went down to Takatimu in April earlier this year and emceed the open day that they had there at the coal mine. And I was there at that one. Oh, Really? Oh, no, okay. yeah. Today. yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, you know, and and uh, everyone actually that would, you know, everyone that worked there was, and I have to say, actually, just going to the mine, my first impression of that particular mine, there were the the crew that worked there, just really happy, positive, keen to showcase, you know, where they're working and that sort of stuff, and um, and you know, whether it's a mine or you know another large industrial site, freezing works, dairy factory, whatever, you just you get whatever impression you get within the first five minutes of being there. And it was just a really good, not to be too technical, but just vibe on site and that sort of stuff. And um, and I, sorry, just to cut a long story short, the open day that was there, I think there was an anticipation that a lot of people would turn up for the sausage sizzles and the lolly scrambles and the bouncy castles, but maybe wouldn't be that interested in the mining side of it. They were doing bus tours and shuttles and that around the mine. And Every extra driver that they'd made contingency for, every extra van that they had on standby, that I think they had about fifteen hundred people over the course of the day, or around thirteen, fifteen hundred mm. that really just wanted to go through and see the mine and that sort of stuff. And even the there were two ladies that were there running a coffee cart as some sort of fundraiser, or maybe just as a business. And one of the women that was there, it wasn't both of them, but one of them said, "Oh, you're still doing the tours?" She said, "I've, I've never been through there, and I really, really wanted to see it," you know, and. Um, I said, oh, I'm sure we can arrange that. So I said to the mine manager, Paul, I said, oh, look, is it too late to get someone through? He said, no, we'll get a ute and make it work. So, you know, it was, and people were just really curious to see what was happening. But back to your original point, the, I mean, one of the big things for me with mining and, you know, having grown up next to a pit that used to be mined by my family and that sort of stuff that was gradually reshaped and put into pasture and parts of it have now been made into housing and that sort of stuff. It's, if you look at everything that's occurred in New Zealand over the last sort of seven or eight centuries of human inhabitation in terms of meeting people's needs, whether it was mower hunting on the Canterbury Plains, you know, 700 years ago, uh, or, you know, farming, forestry, whatever else. Mining, to my mind, is the only one that can actually, urbanisation, throw that in there as well, subdivisions. Mining is the only temporary land use that really exists where after mining has occurred, you can actually do what you want with the land. So if it had biodiversity values before it was mined, you can try and ensure that it's got biodiversity values after it was mined. You can put it back into farmland, you can put it back into housing, you can really do anything that you want with it because you're actually only utilising the land for a fixed period while you access that resource effectively. So 0.04% of yeah. the land. It, it of, really puts it into perspective. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. And, you know, that's a figure that's so small that, I think when people hear it, they sort of think, oh, well, what's actually the problem then? But then that puts it in proportion. But then you see a photo, and I'm exactly the same as, like, I look at an f- old family photo of a yellow caterpillar machine plowing through some native bush, and all you see is that photo. You know, you don't get the sense of proportion. You just see that and think, you know, I don't really like it. And Dad said to me, he doesn't like 
clearing bush, but it's just been an aspect of what he's done over the course of his life. And farmers don't necessarily like sending their animals off to the works and that sort of stuff, but it's just part of the job. And if you weren't doing that, you wouldn't be a miner or you wouldn't be a farmer well, or something like that sometimes, you know? So, yeah. You clear the bush for everything, don't you? Making roads, yeah. housing, yeah, exactly. all of that. And, yeah. and, you know, I might be flippant when I'm saying this, but it seems coal mining is bad. But if you're mining in Congo or Mongolia, mm. Yeah. Or stuff that goes into your EVs and Teslas and all of that, that that seems to get a free pass, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think when something's happening, you know, someone will be far, most people will be far more comfortable buying, you know, 250 grand bit of steak from the supermarket than they would be butchering a cow. And I can completely understand that for obvious reasons. So if something's out of sight and out of mind, people will have a different feeling about it. I mean, other countries have got different policies and even different values. They might not have a functioning political regime and that sort of stuff. So practices that occur in other countries um, aren't what we would want in New Zealand. And I, mean, I think if anything, if, if nothing else, the fact that that's how mining can be done shows that mining is not just good in and of itself. And if it's not done properly and if it's not managed like any other economic activity, it can have quite harmful outcomes. But from my point of view, if it's in New Zealand, we don't just have ownership of it we have custody we have responsibility and we can dictate the terms you know through legislation on which mining occurs so yeah yep um all of this stuff is uh it's it's almost foreign i watched um your interview on tv one i think it was with maddie oh, mclean yeah. where yeah, he yeah. he linked back to um a forest and bird activist who mm. talked about um this is death by a thousand cuts to the to the um environment yeah. yeah and yeah and your output that was a very long interview for tv one by the way um mm. they normally yeah. would cut cut it short but yeah. you obviously had them captivated but he couldn't yeah. get your angle uh i looked at his quizzical face the whole mm. you know every time it went back to him he couldn't get it that you could have uh um an advanced predator control and conservation mm. if you just allowed a little bit of mining yeah um, and uh yeah if you're a west coaster as, as you are uh and i called you a patriot early on mm. uh to me the west coast needs that sort of stuff mm. uh, just like southland needs stuff we we, yeah. we use the environment we use it wisely hopefully and and we improve as we learn um mm. uh you know it's a bit arrogant for someone to be sitting disconnected in a, a high rise in, in the big city sort of saying you can't do this on the west coast um you're you're hurting um something and and then you go on to your other story that i've watched on one of your clips about the in the coromandel where you're the the mining company there is going to be digging tunnels under conservation land yeah it wasn't lost on me that the mm -hmm. archie's frog doesn't live in those tunnels yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the very uh very idea that uh that they could be uh affected by uh, by the mining um mm -hmm. uh it it was it was almost too obtuse to be understood i imagine by a lot of people but uh there's so many ways and means that man devolves or evolves his ideas uh mm -hmm. and does things better i mean we should just have some trust in that around as you say some some smart regulations Mm. But um, what else can we talk about? I mean, I, there's this technology uh, that I'd like to go back to in terms mm. of coal burning. Mm. Can you talk about the scrubbers uh, that are used in modern coal uh, burning facilities? 
Do you know yeah, much well, about that? Oh, look, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on it. The only thing I can really say to that is something that, um, uh, oh, I won't name names here just to protect the innocent, but someone that works at a large industrial site, uh, who I know anyway, made the point once. And uh, scrubbers don't necessarily do a lot for carbon dioxide emissions per se, but in terms of just general air quality and that sort of stuff, um, you know, if you were to walk around, and I'm trying to think of other townships around Southland that probably this would also apply to as well, but if you were to walk around Pokotika on a winter's morning when people have banked down their fires overnight with coal and that sort of stuff to just try and make sure it's easy to fire them up in the morning, you know, if you this time of year, for example, if you were to go for a walk or a run around Pokotika at six or seven in the morning, you could smell coal soot in the air and that sort of stuff. And if you're up on the airport hill looking down, you can see a little bit of a layer. Not not much because we're a coastal town and we get a lot of wind and that sort of stuff. Not like Christchurch probably would have been 50 years ago when it's effectively a, a bowl. Um, apparently once upon a time in Christchurch, you had to have streetlights on in the daytime to sort of see through the fog. It was sort of like almost a Victorian Sherlock Holmes sort of type thing. <laughs> now, you take that. Now, I, I don't know what the annual coal consumption for residential households in Hokitika is, but it wouldn't be much. Now, you know, that's on a winter's morning or a winter's evening that people would notice that. Now, Westland Milk products in Hokitika goes through, oh, they were going through seventy or 80,000 tonnes of coal a year. I think now it's probably closer to 50,000 just through efficiencies and things like that. Now, they're burning probably more coal in a day or a week um, in the middle of summer than what all of the households put together in Hokitika would burn across an entire winter or something like that, right? And yet, if you go past Western Milk at any day of the year when it's operating, you won't even smell coal. You'll see a bit of steam coming out of the boilers and then the chimney tops and that sort of stuff, but you won't see soot and you won't smell coal because that, generally speaking, those respiratory issues and that sort of stuff, they're just, just not really existent in New Zealand through the regulations and everything that we've got. The types of coal that you're allowed to burn and, like you say, the scrubbers and the filters and that sort of stuff tend to regulate that quite effectively. So, yeah. So, so you'd argue that the, well, you can argue that the footprint is not as deleterious as uh, it once was because of improvements in in scrubbing. Mm, yeah. um, we could uh, we could debate whether the CO two um, is a bad mm. thing or a good thing. I mean, yeah. most most farmers know it's a good thing. Um, more CO two is a greening world, but um, we understand that uh, uh, using the resources uh, of the world efficiently is is mm. more our, our go. But yeah, there's. Um, what are we going to do to change? Yeah, you know, New Zealand's got this um, this idea that we can just ban stuff all the time. Yeah. What what's what's going to change that? Is it economic conditions, or is it going to be um, New Zealanders waking up to uh, a you know, and they say they're going to want a desirable standard of living across mm. all uh, uh, components of society? Mm. Uh, What's your view on that? Because activists seem to be controlling the media narrative on all the stuff. And I yeah, I just take my hat off to you, um, Patrick. You're very, very good in the in the media. You mm. put you put your case across without malice, but boy, there's a lot of people who are seriously malicious when they start speaking on stuff that's negative to use of resources like coal. Yeah. Well, um, um... You know, thank you for saying so in terms of, um, you know, whether I'm having any effect or anything on or not in the media, I you know, appreciate the compliment um, regardless. But, the yeah, the, I think the malice and that sort of stuff, it does get a bit frustrated. I mean, I definitely try as hard as I can to 
go on the basis of what facts I can find, treat people with a degree of, you know, sincerity and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, it is difficult in terms of sort of when will there be a bit of a wake up moment and that sort of stuff. It, it's a very difficult link to draw, you know, I mean, it, there's certain things that are easier to illustrate than others. I mean, from, you know, if you're a dairy farmer, I, I don't think it's, impossible to get people to understand that milk comes from a cow or that you know lamb comes from a you know in terms of meat comes from a sheep or wool comes off a sheep's back now take something a bit less tangible than that and you need in new zealand to produce corrugated iron for roofing um at the nz steel possibly just step over the recent um taxpayer funded deal that the government did with blue scope we'll just walk past that quickly um the you know, and, and you could say to people, right, that's that's been produced through coal um, from the Waikato and some imported from Indonesia and the iron sands of the Taranaki. And to get people to look at a sheet of corrugated iron and see that um, is difficult, even though you can see that it's made from metal. Now, you try and then go that little bit further and tell people that the milk that I just mentioned has got coal as an energy input in into it. We can't really see the coal that's in the milk. You definitely can't see the coal that's in the tomatoes that have been ripened in hothouses that have got a consistent temperature year round. And so what most people see when they see that the cost of tomatoes or milk or what have you may have gone up at the supermarket, well, the first instinct is to, you know, blame the greedy grocer or the, you know, dairy owner or something like that. And then the next instinct is probably to blame the farmers for, you know, rotting them and all that sort of stuff. The the instinct is not to blame the added cost components from a quite likely well-meaning official somewhere, you know, sitting in an office um, somewhere in the sort of, you know, CBD of Wellington. So that's the, that's the and, and the thing that I probably worry about, like, let's say, for example, there were some big deindustrializations, maybe some dairy factories shutting or, you know, NZ Steel pulling out of New Zealand or something like that. They've got pretty strong political levers seemingly, but, you know, anything like that will... Once that happens, it's too late. A factory, once it leaves the country, is never going to come back, you know. And that's that's the concern that I've got is that by the time it possibly becomes more obvious or conscious for people, well, the ship sort of that ship sailed, horses bolted, whatever else you want to say. So yeah. Yeah. Um quickly before we go, Patrick, what's yeah. next for you? I know you uh, recently are on the council now. Is yeah. it the West West Coast? District uh, the Westland, so Westland, if anyone doesn't understand the parochial dynamics of the West Coast, there's Buller <laughs> District in the north, which sort of goes from Katamea for anyone that's walked the Hefe Track down to Punakaiki. Grey District, we'll just stick to the coastline. Grey District goes from Punakaiki down to just south of Greymouth Township, where there's the Tatamako River. And then just south of that, you've got Westland District, which goes all the way down to the border of um, Southland, actually, um, about Big Bay or no, Milford Sound, I think it is maybe, or Martins Bay or somewhere there or thereabouts. So um, yeah, Western District. So on the council there. Sorry, Jesper, what was your um, so 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 what got you on this? You know, coming from uh, the background you have, what got you standing oh, the council? Oh, on the council, I guess I'm probably always had a slight interest in politics, not in sort of a partisan sense or anything like that, but just in terms of how governments function or don't function and the impacts that that can have on people's lives and my. Families had a fairly intimate relationship with the district council in um, Westland through, you know, various subdivisions and dealing with, you know, issues and what have you there. It's just sort of something I've always paid attention to, but there were just a few 
things that I didn't feel particularly happy with, with how things were being done. And I thought, well, you can either sit on the sidelines and blame the referee, or you can sort of try and get on the field yourself and, you know, see if there's anything that you can do about it. So whether that's going to be the case or not remains to be seen, but, you know, it's a, um, in terms of anything in the process that I find doesn't quite work the way that I think it would be desirable to work. And that's only trying to govern a district of 9,000 people, um, you know, in one of three districts on the West Coast, you sort of think, geez, if you extrapolate that across 5 million people in New Zealand, still only a relatively small country, it's no wonder that things go the way they go, um, you know, sometimes in New Zealand. So, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. But with so, your, yeah. uh, you know, communication skills, I have no mm. doubt you'll make a difference. So oh, and, I th- and I think the two of you need to um, communicate a whole lot more on uh, yeah. getting the Haas Hollywood Road between uh, the West Coast and and uh, Southland. I know the people in Queenstown will hate me saying that because they don't want it, but uh, you know I think that would be a great uh, a great thing to have happen over time uh, in, in the near future. I know I lobbied for it in 2011 and 2014, and um, the people in Tianao were keen as mustard. Um, <laughs> But uh, it just seems to go on the back burner. So the two of you councillors and are joining uh, uh, councils, maybe you can make some, something happen. Good yeah, may look, good. may look into it. We've got a hard enough time just filling potholes and sealing roads as it is before we take that on. But, yeah, that'll be on for another day, Don. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, we, thanks very much for yours. And yeah, happy to talk. So sorry, Don, what were you going to say there? It's, it's been great. Your enthusiasm is um, infectious. And um, I hope, yeah, the, the people of the West Coast um, are lucky to have him, and the and Minerals West Coast, lucky to have a man of your um, considered uh, nature and, and enthusiasm in their, in their midst. So uh, all the best and all power to your arm. Thanks for coming on to RCR Greenwashed. Oh, no, no. Hey, thanks very much for having me. And um, yeah, good luck with um, everything else in the future. And yeah, happy to talk again sometime if you like. So yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.com. Dot radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwash with me and Dawn. Thank you so much for joining us. For those who've just joined us, our number for a feedback uh, text message is 2057, or you can email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Now, if you're able to listen to that last interview with Patrick, I sure Thank you, but I've enjoyed it. He's he's a great communicator, and it does help to have an RNZ background. Yeah, it absolutely does. I found his uh, communication style fantastic. I wish that I had the same level of um, on the clarity of thought that he has. I mean, he's got his lines well and truly sorted out. He knows in his head uh, what he's going to say. He's not winging it. It's just it's his learnings, and he's telling the story and. Uh, Mining has thousands of jobs, pays billions, you know, puts towards our economy. The government gets a few hundred million dollars of royalties. Perhaps it's time you learn not to look a gift horse in the mouth for, what was it, the footprint? 0.04% of conservation land is used Mm. for mining. Mm. Mm. And... I, you know, what I noted too in the Coromandel area, they're talking about tunneling a lot more than 
uh, open open cast sort of mining and you know if surely if you're tunneling the uh footprint is even less uh visible so i don't know look we've got this mindset in new zealand jasperite that is everything to do with the environment is um right in, in many ways I, I don't want to understate it i want to see the environment protected too but we have to balance what is uh as a human being and a human race what is it we don't enjoy about using the environment what is it we don't enjoy and what are we prepared to go without and i also think we need to get over ourselves john we are not that important in the world honestly we are not if you just look at this uh, the tone of this email that has uh, been released as a press release from James Shaw who seems to think we are changing our stance he says what we are saying now is we need to pick a team there's a fight going on and we need to work with other countries who are as alarmed as we are about the risk that we pass the 1.5 degrees of warming threshold of the next few years and uh he just goes on and on fighting for every ton well of course they are um building to the big see at conference of the parties number 28 later in the year and they are positioning um it reminds me of the minnow taking on the whale um and and you know who is the whale well uh, certainly isn't isn't James Shaw he's the minnow uh telling the big players how they should play i don't think it's going to end well 0.17% less than a quarter of the percent of the world's gross emissions gosh even if we completely self annihilate not a blip on the yeah. world so what well, yeah exactly you said new zealand will now be loud consistent and dogged in pursuit of mitigation outcomes <laughs> um i can't wait to see that play out is uh what the author of this um um news article said I can't wait to see how it plays out either but then he goes on to say and of course in order to maintain our legitimacy we need to be need to keep acting on climate at home that includes tackling our largest sort of source of emissions agriculture and of course we've been duped on that score for 20 plus years and i watched the usual suspects uh in in the newsrooms of this country writing stuff that's uh so negative against agriculture when even the IPCC has said uh that agricultural emissions uh or especially the methane emissions have been overstated by a factor of 3 to 4 um and it's not just meaning 3 to 4 in New Zealand for air ruminant animals it's global 3 to 4 i mean it's even a pipeline leaking methane it's but physics is physics they seem to differentiate between biogenic methane me- uh, methane from you know natural processes and so on i remember when they cut the nord stream or it was destroyed or whatever happened to the nord stream within 24 hours there's an article saying that nord stream uh, leakage that pipeline supplying gas uh, what what sea is that one in the north uh, northern is, hemisphere is the baltic sea is it baltic probably mm. yeah and that it would have no effect seriously mm. a methane molecule is a methane molecule is a methane molecule it doesn't matter what they had for breakfast as the, <laughs> as an old song <laughs> goes it doesn't matter it's a methane molecule and of course uh we've got a guy coming to new zealand and then well in fact he is in new zealand yeah, yeah. now uh 
speaking in Waikato last Friday. And over the weekend, I think he's at the field days, been at the field days as well. And today he's um, going to be at Palmerston North, at the Rongatira Rugby Club, then down to Masterton Tuesday, Thursday, Ashburton, Friday at uh, Omaru. Following Monday in Vicargill, that I'm going to chair that meeting, and Gore the following day in Balclutha that evening. And his name is Dr. Tom Sheehan, and he's going to speak about methane is an irrelevant greenhouse gas. And by that, he means um, it's irrelevant in terms of its warming effect uh, on the planet, doesn't matter the source, uh, because it is completely overshadowed uh, in the radiative forcing spectrum. So We've been sold a pup for a long time. Sure, we didn't know about this for the last, you know, let's say, until 2018, or most of us didn't. And they'll say, oh, but um, William Happer and Professor uh, William Van Weingarten's papers weren't published. Well, things have changed since 2018, 2019, and that stuff is getting more traction. And clearly, uh, we have been duped. And there is no need to be... Um, tying ourselves up in knots over methane and potentially, and I would suggest neither, nitrous oxide. And so, look, anyone that uh, I think the, the Groundswell website uh, or the Groundswell Facebook page has those dates, times and dates and venues, so mm. go there. Um, and, of course, Jasper, you did even some more, oh, more super sleuthing last week. Before I go on to that, I want to say something else that was in that um, article it's, it, it's, oh, no, I, I don't want to repeat myself. Be loud, consistent, and dogged. Sorry, I've already said that. Uh, apologies, mm. listeners. Yeah, it's the arrogance of this article that really got to me. Um, but we didn't even know uh, this was sort of in the gun right now. And we're, what, five months out from, from Bonn um, co- Conference of the Parties. So, yeah, you're super sleuth and going to that. I've redeemed myself a little bit. I'll get my composure <laughs> back. Um Jaspreet uh, Super Sleuth found uh, another uh, set of documents earlier in the week, um, and that was around the Global Methane Hub and the pledges that New Zealand and, and other countries are making and the initiatives. And this is a 2022 initiative. Gosh, it must have slipped through in the dark of night. Yeah, and they have signed us up along with 150, I believe, 155 mm. countries. So if you, if the listeners go to globalmethanepledge.org, there it is. We have been signed up. There's a whole list of reasons why methane is so important. And that's why I think, Don, you don't see the party is really, you know, speaking up about the irrelevancy of methane. It's almost like, we have no opposition where true science is concerned. We can have, we can, they keep us busy in fighting about, oh, Maori science and this science, but hey, physics, methane, the irrelevancy. No one speaks about this. And no, they've no, signed that... us up to these pledges, so they obviously can't backtrack now, can they? Well, this is deeper and wider than I could have ever imagined. Uh, you know, New Zealand was in the Global Research Alliance formed in 2010, and that was, uh, you know, supposedly going to find something to minimise a methane uh, effect from ruminant animals in a New Zealand sense. So far, it's, as uh, we're told, it's spent 200 million and come up with 
pretty much nothing. Mm. Now you see political parties posturing that we need to have GE type grasses that can and, and crops that can uh, minimize global, sorry, um, localized methane outputs um, from our animals. Um, but so far, big fat zero. So wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good to have the physics absolutely show that methane from any source, not just little old New Zealand sheep and cattle, um, just can't be deleterious or dangerous to the world temperature? As I understand it, Jaspreet, methane can from all sources can only cause what could be deemed an almost imperceptible warming over a century, like hundredths of a degree. Don, I can tell you, if you go and tell an, an uneducated farmer in India, an absolute, you know, as rural as they come, that your cows are destroying the world, you'd be laughed out of the place. Yet we have here supposedly educated people, lecturers, university, you know, researchers who just seem to go along with this. Oh, the gravy train is long and loaded. It's uh, full of people uh, milking uh, milking the cow, so to speak. Uh, and of course, New Zealand participants are right there. But when I've, in recent weeks, this rhetoric against animal agriculture has lifted another gear. Um, not only have we had the Netherlands issue over the last 12 months, more recently we've had the Irish farmers being told they may have to start a slaughter of their um, their beef and, and dairy cows. And now we've got John Kerry in the state saying um, it's, it's fundamental that we reduce our animal agriculture uh, to minimise the effect of methane on the world. These guys are deep, deep, deep in it. And uh, Real people, people with common sense, need to stand up and start batting for what's right. The National Party in New Zealand have put out a kicking the can down the road to, to 2030 sort of policy. I dare say that's that's okay. They're waiting for people like you and me and others Don, to... Don, we don't argue within the allowed narrative, do we? Let's not... That's the way I think. What's yeah, a no. lie is a yeah, lie. And, Absolutely. So this half, speaking out of both sides of your mouth, never does it. I can't do it. So I very, I very much am off the side that you've just sort of talked about. Say it as it is. Stop this posturing 50-50 stuff, kicking the can down the road, which is what the Nats have done. ACT have put something even a little more onerous out there. It's still not right. But if ACT can be convinced that uh, that methane and the physics of methane is as it appears, then they should move their positions. In fact, so should National, and so should Labour, and so should the Greens, and so should every political party, and say, nothing to see here. We can all go home, and we'll save hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and we'll stop the anxiety that's being pushed on our school children and our farmers. We'll I'm, stop I'm, that anxiety. On everyone, the, the methane pledge, when I'm looking at that website, there's Justin Trudeau, when he signed up Canada, to, he says it, that is referring to methane, is also an air pollutant that's responsible globally for half a million annual deaths and hundreds of thousands of asthma-related hospitalizations annually, said Canadian PM Justin Trudeau. That's why Canada welcomes the lies never stop. Oh. Seriously, where have you last seen a report saying that half a million, you know, or even this this one death. I've I've 
seen reports that Canada was the first one to for a woman who suffered from heat stroke to prescribe climate change. But seriously, they are one ahead of us here. Half a million deaths. Yeah, uh, way ahead of, of my thinking. But just going back to the, my era a few moments ago, um, I was trying to think of the line I'd read in that news article where uh, they were talking about the countries that they would be aligning with at this conference they're at right now, the New Zealand people. And you know who the usual suspects will be. They are right there. And you've just mentioned one of them. Justin Trudeau's mates will all be there. Um, I I don't know when the West is going to wake up to the damage these people are doing. Uh, Because I certainly, um, uh, Charlie, I don't want to be enslaved by uh, these people. (laughs) You're having your own back down, Charlie. I am. I am. Yeah. And uh, for anyone who'd care to have a look at our uh, official, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act website, fii.org.nz, if you go and search for, say, Jock Allison's name, Professor Jock Allison, he and Tom Sheehan, the professor from the U.S. who's currently here, they have co-authored many papers. Tom PhD in physics, who has chaired the United States Science and Environmental Policy uh, Project, has also been advising the preparation of papers of other universities, William Happer and others. He is, no one debates him, do they? He puts it so simply. So if you can go along to have a look at the Groundswell website, go along and listen to one of his talks if they're around you somewhere. I know I'll be going to the one in in McCargill that Don will be cheering. Well, yeah, I've listened to uh, Tom. Uh, I've watched him on video. I've listened to him on radio in New Zealand in the last week. And, you know, he's got no malice. He doesn't have any spite. He doesn't want to. He just is saying what he knows is right without fear or favor mm-hmm. and um, without an agenda at the, at the end of it. So, you know, it's up to us to take it to the next level, um, get this information to us now, hear it, and then we have to decide how we're going to act upon it. Because clearly you can sense by my tone, the battle lines are being drawn for good this time. There will be no more kicking the can down the road because we've had a gutsful. Completely. And, you know, we've, we've reached a stage where we actually have nothing to lose, whether farmers realize it or not, we are at that point. We are where we have nothing to lose if literally everything is at stake right now. And when you have you're hell-bent upon destroying a sector that accounted for 80 over 80% of your exports in an export-based nation, gosh, every one of us is going to feel the pain. But I, I think it's time to uh, now introduce the next guest Earlier uh, last week, Don and I spoke to Hawks Bay farmer, Mark Warren, and describing him as a farmer as possibly is definitely doing an injustice to Mark. <laughs> oh, gosh, uh, he's a live wire. And um, you'd almost get the impression there's not much he hasn't done. It was a great interview, uh, right from the heart, real authentic, iwi bloke, um, saying it as it is. Uh Regulations get in the way, but he um, he's just gone on and done what he needed to do. And, of course, he started farming about when I did in the early 80s and, you know, suffered the hard time. So, uh, yeah, he's made good, like many of us have, and uh, I think his interview will uh, 
yeah, there's what's and all. There's some there's some pearls in there. So uh, it'll be great <laughs> yes. to, great to hear them again. Absolutely. So join us in a moment. Uh, grab a cup of tea or coffee. We settle down for a long chat with Mark Warren soon. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our number is twenty fifty seven. Or email us at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome to Greenwash with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host Don Nicholson. And we are very happy to have today Mark Warren with us. Mark is a farmer in Central Hawke's Bay. And he's someone who was lucky enough to meet last winter during one of his uh, trips across the country. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks for the warm welcome. Uh, you have done so much from right from you know being the youngest. I believe you were among the youngest recipient of the Young Farmers for Hawke's Bay in '92, to being a best-selling uh, author. Uh, yeah, no, it's correction there. I wasn't the Young Farmers winner. It was actually Hawke's Bay Farmer of the Year. But I right. think I was one of the very youngest to ever win that. But um, yeah, sadly, I wasn't around at the time. Well, yeah, I wasn't in the position to um, get very much involved in young farmers at that level. But yeah, you're very, very yeah, pretty close. Well done. So, <laughs> thank you. So you currently you are at you've been at Vapari Station now for nearly four decades, a Central Hawke's Bay Station. Yeah, correct. Um, it's been in the family since the eighteen sort of eighties. Um, and uh, as a much wider land holding for my great great grandfather Samuel Williams, who developed and 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 um, backed a lot of people into stations and farming operations, including Williams and Kettle, back in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. But it had never had an owner on it. I was actually born in a vicarage, or not in the vicarage. I was actually born in Timaru Hospital. Um, my father was a vicar. My grandfather was a bishop. Um, I come from quite a long line of uh, theological. Um, churchy type people. Unfortunately, got to the point in the early 80s where the farm had been run down and probably not not particularly well overseen and, and um, uh, it got to the point where it's almost bankrupt and my grandfather, who was a bishop, said, Mark, you should go and see if you're going to save the family farm. If you don't save it, you've lost a family fortune. Um, so, and that was all very well for him. Uh, I was only 24 at the time. Um, and yeah, a bit of pressure there, but um, yeah, so I was sort of tossed, tossed in the deep end a little bit. I was only 24, pretty green. And then um, that was the 1st of July, 1984. And then, of course, a couple of weeks later, Roger uh Labour Party got in. Rogenomics came along, so it was a little bit of a bat sort of by fire, but um, what does it tell you? timing. Well, that's what the chosen one has uh, done to them, of course. If you're the chosen one, you've got to front up. Sounds well, like you have. <laughs> I said that they'd spend a whole a couple of generations saving souls, but nobody got around to save any cash. But they were they were spending a fair bit of cash. But that's another story for another day. Yeah, well, you've certainly you've certainly uh, had a um, a fantastic history on the farm, and um, your evolution is legendary by the look of it. Uh, you know, what was the first? First sort of challenge, aside from having no money and interest rates going through the roof and uh, product prices being terrible, what, what was the first challenge that you really said you've beaten beaten back and you're on you're on track? Um, you mean when I took over the station yes, eighty four? Yes, yes. 
Well, it wasn't. There was no money, but the farm had been run down pretty badly. Fifty-six uh, percent lambing. It was just after the eighty-three drought, and that was pretty horrific. It was on the back of the um, livestock incentive scheme. So there were eight thousand very skinny ewes. In fact, we found later on there were seven thousand eight hundred ewes, and two or three hundred weathers had been marked as ewes to try and get the subsidies. Fifty-six um, percent lambing, sixty percent calving. There were three stockproof paddocks from 3,000-odd acres. Uh, farm working expenses were 99% of gross farm income, and they had even put on fertiliser, and they should be around 50-55%. Um, and, uh, and then the, the staff all went, they said, well, we can see what Mark's going to do, and I've probably got a reputation of being a pretty hard taskmaster, um, and that's probably putting it politely. I think once upon a time that one of my stock managers turned up the local pub and uh, one of the old grizzlers was laying on the bar and said, oh, Ian, where are you working? And uh, he said, oh, I'm on White Perry for Mark Warren. Oh, why would you want to work for that bastard port? And the guy and my stockman said, oh, no, Mark's right. He doesn't put up, put up with bits at all. So, um, yeah, I stood on a few toes. Um, to be fair, you know, getting, go back to your question, getting the place stockproof, and stopping the stock leaking to other pe- other properties around us, which wasn't always coming back, was a big challenge. Um, taking on staff that I could work with and could see my vision was another challenge. Um, and, yeah, invariably, I'd found it was easy to do the job myself, so I probably worked myself very good, but, yeah, that's another story. So, so just as a precursor to all of that, did you have another chosen career that you would have decided to do had you not been coerced into... Uh into farming? Um, good question. No, right from the word go, when I was in, right from Timaru, I, with my mother at age three, my earliest memories of going down to the Mackenzie country, one of the Grampians, um, with Esther Hope, and then also down with the, to Halden with the Innes family, uh, and then up to Mount Cook Station, it's a bit later on. Um, I've always said my heart is in Mackenzie, but my wallet is in Hawke's Bay. Um, I'd always wanted to farm, and being based in Geraldine, I used to wander along the road. Any likely-looking farmer with a Land Rover or a Bedford truck, I'd say, can I come and open gates for you for the day? And I'd only be five or six. So I learned to open gates and drive pretty quickly. I did, however, have option two. When I came, I always had a mechanical interest. When I came out of Lincoln, I spent 18 months as truck and diesel mechanic with um, gill traps and crosshitch for the end gill trap. And that was about great background as well. Um, always useful, but uh, no, I'd always want to be a farmer, but I think most farmers need two strings to their bow just in case you can't farm. Yeah, so uh, so aside from your sheep, you, when did you branch into the forestry aspect of your business? Was it sort of um, early on? Yeah, that was early, in the very early 80s, 83, 84. We're actually, uh, we're actually the headwaters of the Mangakuri stream, or actually not all of it, but um, the Mangakuri stream comes out of Krakow Beach, and it's very erosion-prone in this country, and there's a scheme that they wanted to um, uh, set up and, and, and uh, put up a good soil conservation program in the, in the headwaters of the Mangakuri stream. Krakow Beach is a great little beach settlement with a big lagoon. Um, that's largely filled up with silt now. During the war, I was told that the Home Guard used to have a, um, a sentry box on top because they were worried about the um, the jacks coming up in the submarines. Um, but over the years, um, it's silted up, and now you've got to be pretty clever to get, you know, it, it's sort of um, 
Well, even at high tide, you've got to be pretty clever to get over the bar in a jet boat with first reach of water. Um, and so we realised something had to be done about that. Um, and we, I think we have. We've slowed the degradation down. It's interesting to note that further up the river, um, I've seen on one bank where there are three fences on top of each other. Um, in other words, that's how much it's filled up probably in 100 years. But in saying that, um, playing the devil's advocate, I sometimes argue that perhaps we should smash the hills down as fast as humanly possible, fill up all the gullies, and then we've got nice flat land. Um, because you get a whole lot of green, you're saying we should get room and it's off the hill country. So I think we should smash it all down um, so that we can have you know, nice nice flat land and all grow lettuces and, and mung beans. So um, we always got to see a counterpoint. You could, you could come and live in Southland or Canterbury Plains and you'd get that all for free. I mean... Um, yeah. I'm being I'm being facetious too. Uh, yeah. yeah, interesting concept. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of things uh, that people outside your farm gate don't understand. The sort of things you have to face and erosion. It's not it's not one thing that you would like to have uh, every to face every day. I mean, I don't have to face it on my farm. Uh, I I imagine it's uh, front and center of your mind uh, most days. You've got to manage your land. So you minimise erosion-prone uh, land and, and, and stop. I probably never really asked the original question about the forestry. So we started on this um, erosion control plan in the early 80s, and we kept going right through while well, we, we're planting continuously now. Um, back in the early 80s, 84, 85, 86, um, you know, there was a big plan to plant more trees. I remember the catchment board um, coming here on a field day, and, you know, those are the days when we were facing significantly greater interest bills. And we had a catchment board field day here. And I remember a good mate of mine, Sam Robinson, who was on the catchment board, Sam, who's on Silver Fern and a whole lot of other boards. And now I, I stood at the top of this hill. I said, we're paying 23, 24% interest. I said, I reckon the trees are at best doing a 17% return on capital. And I said, there's a big hole in the middle that we can't finance. And, Sam said, MAT, you just got to keep doing it. And I'm very grateful that he did encourage me. Yes, there was a hole for a few years, but the planting of the trees on about, we're about 25% of our property now is of white trees and production forestry. Um, that has been a godsend. I don't think I'd be in business if I didn't have that forestry to back us up. Um, it's allowed us to pay off a lot of debt, allowed us to, um, you know, basically buy out other members of the family and other previous members so that we've got control of it for the next generation. And it's allowed us to do a lot of um, development on the better country and retire the rough stuff that's totally unproductive. But in saying that, we call the word productive, we've tended to think of that in terms of sheep and cattle or, and, 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 and wool or fibre and meat. But in actual fact, financially, Forestry is probably a much, much better return than than shed and cattle. So, you know, but we don't rely, we don't want to rely on one thing. We, any good investor likes to spread their risks. So, yep. yeah. There, there was, sorry, Jasper, there was many, uh, many other, um, oh, there was many periods in that uh, 80, 1980 to, to 10 years ago where forestry ebbed and flowed to a point where I, I had forestry as well, and I'd have neighbours say to me, oh, that was a waste of time, Don. Look, Al, you, you'd get a bill if you had to harvest that today. How did you get through those periods? I mean, my view is you don't have to cut a tree down until you want to. Is that how you've managed it? Yeah, absolutely right. You don't want to be in a position 
where you have to cut it down. Uh, luckily, trees are not like lambs where they cut their teeth and you're going to get them off before they drop in value. Yes, you've got to understand the productive production curve of a tree. Um, at the moment, we had a block of trees that we would have, and we paid to put the road in out of the farm cash flow three years ago. Uh, we've had to hold off and hold off and hold off. We'd like to get them out this year. I'm heartened by the fact that at the moment the forestry price is very low, and what we do know about forestry is that it, it's a great um, um, zigzag, what we call that, you know, the pendulums usually. Um, the key is not being a position where you have to cut them out in a, hurry, in a hell of a hurry. And at the moment, I mean, it's nice to think that they're um, also sequestering carbon, but that's a two-edged sword. And, um, yeah, we only plant land and trees if we think that that's the best use of the land for production forestry. Carbon is a total bonus, if at all. And as I say, it's like rural Bitcoin. We don't trust it. And um, if it's there, we'll have it. Thanks very much. But um, it's candy floss business, really. Yeah. Agreed. Anything that can be, you know, created a legislated market, it can disappear just as fast. Yeah, and out yeah. here, we, we, you know, constantly, and I think across the country, we're hearing about farmers diversify. Farmers do this off-farm income or on-farm forestry and so on. But you have done this for a long time, Mark, right from bottled water to four-wheel driving to writing a book. Oh. There is uh, no one who can, uh, you know, speak more about diversification than you have. Oh, it has always worked out well. Uh, but, yeah, we've tried a lot of things. I'm, I'm very dyslexic, and so I've always got a left-hand view of things. I mean, one of the other ones that would have gone well but um, was a uh, – we had a perfume industry set up um, because New Zealand doesn't as yet produce a particularly successful woman's perfume in the, in the, tour, the market. So it said the, the coming over here, the tourist would actually like to take back a memory of New Zealand. That's another story all in itself. Um, we went right down the track. We had it all sorted. We had the, the whole production system. We had women all like The district girls were going to go pick, pick the certain flowers that we'd put in the cocktail um, at 5 o'clock in the morning, just on dewy mornings like they do in France. We had a French perfumer. We had the whole thing sorted. And then a friend of mine in the perfume industry showed me that the Chinese would um, make it artificially and blow us out of the water. So I just closed the file and put it in the bottom drawer. But it's still there. One day we'd like to have a go at that one. And I think that's a huge opportunity. But, um, yeah, there's been a few others that haven't gone so well. Well, you know, provenance uh, is uh, is part of your, your mix and provenance foods and provenance perfume. I don't see why not. I mean, I've had the same view about wine, uh, actually. Uh, Mark, you think about it. You could actually um, produce uh, wine a bit like... Um, uh, the impossible burger type meat. You could actually artificially produce wine, put the tasters in, add the alcohol, and jobs done. That's <laughs> not the way the world works. So all pad your arm with regard to um, the perfume. It's a great innovation. And I imagine have have you got into the manuka honey type business yep. your way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, manuka, we do a little bit of that, not much. Um, Peter Allworthy was always very encouraging because he was a great fan of the cabbage tree, as was Fiona Allworthy. Um, and um, look, there's something up here. We, we've been, you know, the, the wine. I think I'm involved with Atkins Ranch, lucky enough to be the first, first sheep farm in the world for a very short time to get the gap accreditation for Whole Foods. Um, and um, we're also lucky enough to be um, re uh, recognised as being regenerative because we're sequestering carbon and all the rest of it. 
One of our other little sidelines was a we do have a a lamb sub brand called Owine, not ovine lamb, but Owine lamb. And these lambs come off a friend of mine's vineyard. I, we finished them on his vineyard. He has a very very good little boutique wine, and so these lambs are marketed in that they have basically eaten the the, the, the clippings, the the trimmings um, of the vines. And they basically come off the same Syrah and all that stuff themselves. Um, so they're marketed to actually exactly grow with the wine because they fertilize the vines. That's a whole circular thing. And that's just another little sideline we like to play with. But my good friend Craig Hicks on the progressive beats, whatever, um, periodically we might sit around the fire with a few drinks and, and, and get lateral. And, and I'm always of the opinion that we have to market our lamb right up there with the best to match the best of the wines, whether or not they're New Zealand wines or whether or not they're overseas. Um, uh, one of my little hairbrain screams have got laughed at a lot, but if people start to realise it's not silly, was the $1,500 lamb by 2028, $1,500 per lamb. Uh, that's another whole story about that one, but you know, we're on track, we're not far off that. Yes, it doesn't happen perfectly, but it's not just about the meat, but it's about all the other byproducts of lamb. And I think we could do it. It won't be every lamb, but you know, we reckon we could do it with a few. And that is some lateral thinking, but there's a, that's another whole story in its own. We're, get, we're getting off track again. I well, did warn you. Track no, again. no, well, we're sort of not getting off track because it's a really interesting story. I'm, I'm big on uh, listening to people talking about brands. And um, it concerns me that everyone talks about brand New Zealand. But you're actually running, uh, and, and you're, you're talking about individual brands to suit your outputs. And I think that's a massively different thing. And uh, all power to your arm. I'm very concerned about the noose that brand New Zealand puts around things. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a message that we need to talk about. Well, it's, it's a the topic we need to talk about uh, more generally, because every time I hear the Minister of Agriculture, it doesn't matter which party talk about New Zealand Incorporated. They don't own anything. You've actually got skin in the game. They've got none. Um, and so I, yeah, I sunk a fair bit of money into trying to trademark, or I can't, the word's actually dumb. Um, no, it's not it's trademark, another word for it, but I want to try and do. Um, was to own the IP on vegetable, uh, vegetarian lamb and vegan lamb. And they were laughing at me, full bore, until they stopped to think about it. And I learned this from when I went doing cooking demos at Whole Foods in America. And I realised if you tell everyone they're vegetarian lambs, they sit up and listen. And one of the people said, oh, they're made out of soy or something. And I know our lambs only eat, um, they only eat pure salt-laden, you know, seaside salad, as was our marketing point. The next week I realised they're actually vegan lambs. They don't eat eggs, and they don't, well, they might eat worm eggs, but they don't eat eggs and other things like that. I got laughed out of the trades, trademarks office until I said to them, I said, of all your, they said, oh, but that implies it's made out of vegetables. I said, yeah, 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 but they eat vegetables. So you have vegetarians in your office, don't you? Yes. Ask them, put their hands up, look at them and say, you made out of carrots or you're skin and bone. At that point, they got a bit grumpy and they got difficult. But I actually believe, because a lot of lamb is feedlotted around the world and they put other things on them other than pure grass fed, which is our, Great market point. Anyway, that's another whole story we can talk about how that was all going to work. But once again, I've still got a farm to run on. I've been, last couple of days I've been out driving posts in the mud and 
sometimes I've got to stop dreaming and keep 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 producing. So yeah, it's funny. About three Christmases back, um, we sat down to a, a dinner with my family and extended family, and there was a leg of um, very nice uh, Central Otago lamb, uh, Wiltshire actually, lamb on the table uh, that I was proudly uh, presenting. And I said, now this is the ultimate herbivore lamb, uh, herbivore meat, sorry. And I got the weirdest looks from my uh, nieces and nephews. They just couldn't fathom what the old guy was talking about. So I think we're onto something and you're onto something there, Mark. Just keep it up. Well, look, if we go down another time, the, the fifteen hundred dollar, um, you know, lamb. But it's not just about meat; it's all the bioceuticals, all the rest of stuff in there. We're just throwing away. Um, you know, I mean, here's just one little bit of tip, bit of information that people need to think about. The acrylic nail industry in New Zealand now, the girls who get all their nails done, and, and it's great booming industry. You know, that is now greater than our um, strong, uh, strong bread, uh, um, strong wool industry. But one of the visions for our $1,500 lamp was to get Curatech to make these um, nails that apparently cost 200 bucks every couple of months. And instead of making them out of plastic, they'd be made out of natural keratin. And that way they can, they can be branded as natural nails. So, I mean, you know, the prophet, my, my great mentor and accountant, Peter Alexander, constantly reminds me there's profit and vanity. So, you know, another great friend of mine, Angela Payne, She's making um, bits of offal and guts into um, face cream for posh spice. And I know Angela is very successful. She wouldn't mind me saying, but if everyone knew what else Angela's achieved, their eyes would water. We've just got to see opportunities and places that, um, that people haven't looked before. Are you, Mark, are you perhaps talking about this lady? I seem to think I've heard of her. She was a wet nurse or something, and she has gone. She's somewhere around Vipokuro. Yeah, so she yeah. started off doing um, uh, at home as a farmer's wife, just doing fecal egg testing, and then yeah. she realised the market for um, sheep retina. So she'd go down to the local um, Takapar freezing works and get all the old sheep heads thrown out, cut the eyes out, um, slice the retinas out and, and export them and started making money, and then she got into something else and something else and something else and something else. I don't think – and she's now got a company called AgriLab. Yeah. Very successful. Um, very good businesswoman. Um, I don't think she mind me saying. I think she's just bought her third farm, and she now owns a vineyard in Otago as well. Very successful. Um, she just saw opportunities where other people haven't seen it, and um, they, you know, there's opportunity and, and, and waste quite often too. So, yeah, that, that she'd be worthy of an interview. Is it? It's interesting. You've bought up uh, keratin or keratech or, or whatever. Yeah, keratin, sorry. And it's about 30 years ago that um, I think it was Garth Carnaby came around New Zealand telling us that uh, the crossbred wool, this is the answer we were going to. And we were all, oh, phew, we finally got something that's going to be making some more money rather than putting it into broadland carpets. Until we found out very little was required um, and we never sort of heard much more about it. But it's only... It's interesting you bring it up because it's only last week I talked to Jaspreet about this very issue, and I hadn't heard of the keratin process being uh, used since, actually. So good on you. Well, the keratin process, keratin, uh, sorry, keratin was a division, I think, of RONS. Was that correct? Um, correct me if yes, I'm wrong. Yes. And I do remember it being talked about being um, the, 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 the fibre was going to be ground down or reconstituted. But, you know, whether you make it into nails for the, you know, you've only got to look at every little nail bar on the main street. It's huge business. Um, or 
you know, um, replacement bones or body parts or whatever. Um, you know, the opportunities there hugely. I had slightly tongue-in-cheek. I said, wouldn't it be easier if we just learnt, like Rutherford, to split the fibre? We'd take a 36-micron fibre and split it in half and have two 18-micron fibres. Yes, they might be like half-round posts, but, of course, if the 18-micron is so highly valued, why doesn't someone just learn to slice up a 36-micron fibre and Bob's your uncle, a little bit like slicing leather, you know, pelts and make it thinner. So there's another opportunity. Well, that was talked about a long, long time ago, believe it or not. I recall that sort of uh, probably 30 years back. But, yeah, you're, you're the ideas, man. Got to keep keep them coming. Um, I think we all like hearing about them. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about your your uh, excursions into the mud and into the uh, into the trailblazing uh, with with four wheel drives. I mean, I remember as a teenager going to uh, swampy places in Southland and watching competitions, and all I remember was a whole lot of mud that you wouldn't be allowed to get. A, you're probably not even allowed to do it today, but it was big business then. You might How'd have you been, get on? If that was in the seventies and eighties, possibly um, it might have even been me in my early days. Um, look, interesting. So. Right back in the very word go, I think I was probably, I was challenged by trying to get a tricycle um, in Geraldine through a muddy puddle, and I realised if the tricycle was getting, so I'd wrap find its one around the tyres, and that was always a challenge. I wasn't so much about going faster, I just wanted to go further in the bog holes, and that, that, that just grew right up to the point I got involved in rallying and land, old Land Rovers, and then I built up a very successful Toyota Land Cruiser, which was purpose-built, that's when I was working at build tracks, and I had their big workshop, and um, you know, that, that was a major focus, won a couple of New Zealand titles. I was quite pleased that um, I think I won the V8 production modified class for New Zealand two years in a row. And that was with a six-cylinder Land Cruiser that a, a very clever mechanic, Daniel Way, and now I'm fairly cool, Peter Cook, he helped build the motor. It was a very powerful, very high-performance motor unit, <laughs> but it never used to last very long between rebuilds, but that motorsport, great fun. And then that was great. Um, Won lots of cups, um, had a lot of fun doing that as, in terms of forward drive rallying. Then it got to the point where I realised that um, I was getting a bit tired of that, realised I just had to rebuild all the time, so I stopped when I was at the top. Then I was approached to run forward drive training courses for a regional council, and then that grew into um, growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and I was approached by Mazda New Zealand to help launch their forward drive utes. That went really well. That came along at the time when I had a huge interest bill. So Mazda employed me as their four-wheel drive advisor. We ran four-wheel drive training courses all over New Zealand. And I sort of developed, I guess I formalised and wrote down on paper what most of us knew by sliding around in Land Rovers and making a lot of mistakes. And then I put it onto paper and wrote a bit of a book about it and developed the system. Then I got involved in Queenstown running snow-nice driver training up at the Remarkables and also at Snow Farm. That was more for... Snowplow drivers, police, first response people then, you know, the, the, the Audi one and that sort of thing has run up there now at the snow farm. But this was more for four-wheel drives and first response people, and that went really, really well. Gave me the the um, cash flow to be able to pay my interest bill until I cut trees down, basically. And that's become a really good little business. Um, it's just basically we saw a challenge on the farm and crisis and opportunity are equally weighted, and so we turned it into a business. And, um, yeah, it's been a good one. And, I'm lucky enough that Mazda recognised my skills and then I got involved in working with Mazda Japan on developing, um, helping to fine-tune and develop some of the 
uh, Mazda Ford Rob Utes. Of course, they were also Ford Rangers those days. Well, they were made by Mazda. Ford was made made Ford tough by Mazda, we used to say. So for a little boy who grew up in a vicarage on a tricycle, dreaming about mud holes, be paid by Mazda to help um, do development on their utes and fine-tune them was a bit of an accomplishment. And um, yeah, there's been a few other manufacturers I worked for, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of fun for a boy who just likes mucking around with engines and, and, and vehicles to the workshop. There was a bit more to that story, but yeah, you probably don't want to have time for it all now. <laughs> Well, uh, we should remind listeners, we are speaking to um, Mark Warren from Waipari Station, Waipari Station in Hawke's Bay. He's an entrepreneur, and uh, I'm sure you've had support of uh, wife and family. I see someone uh, in the background of this this video that we do uh, for this these recordings, so someone's there helping. I think Guy's probably having me on and, and, and to give me a bit of critiquing, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, as I say, you, it, 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 I was very lucky that John Falloon, who was also a great mentor, um, he did encourage me to write a book, and I said, no, 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 no. And then, and then, poor John died, and I ignored it. And then a couple of years later, we're down at the farm, uh, the farm awards, you know, the Century Farm Awards in Lawrence, and I said, well, your, your story is interesting. You're about to write a book, so I thought, all right, I come home and. Um, set a task of writing a thousand words every morning before seven o'clock and um, yeah the rest was history and um, it's been interesting we'd rather like it if we think that it would be probably better in an audio book format but that's a bit of a sticking point for the publishers at the moment um, I'm very very dyslexic and I think there's a lot of things that dyslexic people are very good at they're not good at reading books it's hard work um, but dyslexia is a great superpower if you can harness it so I, that's one of my other little hobbies now is just encouraging dyslexic people to see their potential. Um, there's so many, you know, dyslexic people are knocked at school, but when they when they find their find yes. their true worth, it's huge. And I could quote all sorts of figures that would astound you, but yeah, there's another there's another hobby horse at the moment. Right. And uh, I can confirm what you just said. I have a mate who is dyslexic, and the head he has for numbers. This is just amazing, and from a very young, very young age. Um, we, Mark, we, we have to remember numbers because we can't read. If we write them down, we can't read our own writing. <laughs> but this person could reel off. You know, I'm talking about seven-digit landline numbers. He knew everyone's everyone's numbers literally at the time when I used to carry around a little diary. Mark, I will ask you about the fact I saw you on a video with the Hawkesbury Regional Council. You know uh, about their. Uh, partnership that they have right tree right place and uh, and i'll say that here because out here we are seeing in southland around where don and i are was swaths of even prime prime pastoral land going into pines around here uh how how has that program fared up at your corner of new zealand i think it is the mantra that we need to um repeat and repeat and repeat and it, 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 it breaks my heart to see the next door properties around me with loose end paddocks being planted in pine trees. And I accept that at the moment that's economic return, uh, that's following a market signal. There will be a time when it's going to be very hard to find store stock for the people on the flats to finish because the store country will go into trees. Most properties like ours, like Waikari, have got a huge variation in the type of country. Some countries shouldn't be in livestock, it's too steep. And that should be in trees. Some country is probably a little bit, it's rough, but that's all right for putting breeding stock on. And some country people finishing. Stuff that you could get a, I say the finishing country 
by and large, it's stuff that you can get a direct drill over. Now, some people might get a bit scared. Anything over, um, yeah, anything over about 35 degrees, there's a few issues there. We have a rule in the early days when we used to break in country. When we started rolling the direct discs, we used to have to back off. We learned never to disc into sheep tracks because the country would move. There's a whole lot of issues around that, but I think we need to get used to saying that these properties are multi-use. Not all for sheep cattle, not all for forestry, not all for cropping, but identify the parcels of land and develop it accordingly. Um, and, and we've had too much blanket planting. Yes, there's some issues of um, pine beetle, some rust. I was talking about forestry contract today about it. You know, we could plant all these properties up in pines, get a dry season, get a hell of a forest fire, and be way, way, way worse off than everywhere before. So we need to have, um, you know, on, on Waipere, we, we focus on having a lot of green country between forestry blocks and fire breaks, um, partly for fire, but partly that slows our disease. It needs to be a very thought-out process. But at the moment, you know, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. And there's money investment available to plant trees in the ground, and um, that's what theoretically is going to be the return now. But you know, it's a long, it's a long game for us. And more and more, we also at the same time are hearing of you know headlines like this one I saw today: forestry contractors at breaking point at flood hit areas. And you, most of your posts over the last, I'd say since March, since Gabriel. I've seen you rallying around, trying to do what you can, and otherwise trying to, you know, marshal up forces there. Tell us a bit more about that, Mark, especially how uh, things have been in the last quarter. Oh, you mean about the forestry contractors or what we've been uh, well, Both of those, how, you know, the general uh, area well, and... Con- I, I feel very, very, very sorry for the forestry contractors. They're a cash flow business. They've got huge money tied up in machinery and wages. And when things go well, it's great. Uh, the forestry people make... If you look at a pine tree, um, the, the the people freighting it to the port get probably about a quarter. The um, uh, the, the forestry contract gets somewhere around a third. Um, you know, and and, and the, the um, some of the other costs. And, and if you're lucky, the, the grower might get you know a little bit more than a third, um, depending on how far away where the forestry take uh, where the freight takes that up. The the poor old forestry contractors, yes, they get a hard time because all of a sudden we go, no, it's not worth harvesting, that come back next year. And they've got all this gear that they're paying payments on and staff. Uh, this year, of course, being blocked out of forestry blocks because access was a problem, was, a, was very challenging. Probably it was, um, it was, it wasn't nice, but they had the opportunity to go and cut down all the wind throw stuff over in um, Turingi. My, I know one of our contractors went over and did that. That kept them in business. Um, so that, that's been a, it's a tough haul, and we do need them. Um, in our own situation, we've just been chewing away trying to get access open. The first week or two, it was just hopeless. It was so wet and so slippy. On our on Waipere, we were only impacted on the back country. The front country got about 110 mils. It went over our bridge by about two metres, and <coughs> typical flood. But the back country got about 400, and that was probably as badly hit. As, as some of the worst parts of Hawke's Bay. We'd actually had a digger out there from Cyclone Harley um, digging up, opening up culverts, salvaging bridges and clearing tracks. Luckily, he left his digger up on a ridge and Cyclone um, Gabriel hit. 
And he just went round and did it all over again, although this time some of the culverts he'd put in, we couldn't even find them. Um, so opening up access is the number one thing. We had to wait a while till it dried out, because otherwise it's like trying to shovel porridge for the port. You just waste a lot of diesel, a lot of energy. Then getting essential fencing um, back up and running, and that was a tough call because you're wandering around in mud, stock you're going everywhere, hard to maintain. We've been very lucky. We had a lot of grass this year, so that took away some of that stress. Um, and then the last two or three weeks, I've been out with a traction post driver, just driving in post wherever I could to resurrect um, fences. And they're not the straightest fence of the world, but the key word is stock roof. But, yeah, that's been the main focus, um, rebuilding the approaches to our bridge and all that sort of thing. It gets you down a bit when you're looking at broken stuff. But, you know, I call it eating the elephant. We start at the trunk. I reckon we're into the rump at this stage. Uh, it'll slow down a bit when we have to face eating the elephant's bum. But, um, you know, when we're making progress and it's it's hard work, but, you know, I must admit, my mate Stephen Harris, who's admitted he's retired, um, I feel it when I come in at night. I've been humping around posts and wandering around and, and that. You start to feel it a wee bit. And, um, but never mind, it's pretty healthy stuff. I've lost the weight lately, so that's probably a good thing. There's always crisis. Crisis and opportunity are always equally weighted. Yeah, well, and, and the other side of this is if there is a silver lining, uh, and, and sorry, this is not my, meant to uh, make light of everything you've faced, is uh, I assume the tax man's going to get less next year. Uh, that will be for sure. And that's actually a really good point that people need to understand, that with the cost of fertiliser, the cost of labour, the cost of farm inputs, uh, we've you, know, you have a, a production curve, an economic production curve where if you produce more at the marginal cost of production, you know, if it gets it gets to a certain point where it's just not worth producing more. We've actually shifted hugely on that the 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 production curve. We will be producing probably ten or fifteen percent less this year because of the input costs. It's just not worth putting on fertilizer at these prices. It's not worth employing labor at the price they want and the productivity they're offering. Uh, we go, no, we're just we'll just plant trees. And grow less food and grow less vegetables. You know, we're growing meat. Some people are growing vegetables. It's it, there's going to be much, much less tax paid. But you know, I was at a MPI. It was a meeting about cyclone recovery today, and I thought very well run meeting. Sadly, there were more officials there than farmers, but very well run, great resources. <coughs> and the point about the um, you know, the, the ten thousand dollars that some farms got was raised, you know, that was very gratefully received, but you've got it whether you're 300 acres or 3,000. The point there to remember is that for every dollar that's invested on a farm, ends up at somewhere around $7 in the uh, province and around $11 for the New Zealand economy. So, um, you know, having an input of cash at this point, <coughs> it's pretty essential to get things up and running because most people are just running out of steam at the moment. <coughs> and doesn't, doesn't it make you... Uh question things when you hear about productivity of government and you've just talked about a meeting in uh, Elsorp today where there was um, more bureaucrats uh, and officials as good as they as you say you commended them but there's more of them than real people doing uh, real work at the coalface yeah yeah look they, look they're all really top people and I wouldn't for a minute they're all most of good friends of mine I wouldn't call them bureaucrats I'm actually glad for them they're getting some government money but the ones in Wellington particularly Envy on on the challenges they give us when we do our ETS return, 
I'm sure there's a whole crew of people down there. Well, actually, we're more than sure we've got the factual evidence through our people who do our forestry, our ATS to turn from. They see their whole job is trying to deny us um, land that we planted trees that, that, that actually is, is um, uh, registrable for the ETS from post-1989 trees. In fact, we've got one map where they must have been doing it at lunchtime and they got sick of it, where they went around the whole block of forestry to about two-thirds of the way through and then, oh, hang on, I blocked them. Somebody else is trying to get me. Um, and they um, they just drew a straight line across the, across the block of forestry and excluded a whole lot of trees that were absolutely viable simply because they wanted to knock off and, 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 and go and have coffee somewhere. That's a lot of money to us. And when challenged, they didn't have an answer for that one, but they had another issue. Well, I said, hang on, why have you chopped that lot out? Oh, the satellite told us that's some vegetation. I said, here's the photographic evidence. That was in Tarweni that grows no, no taller than about a foot. After three years, they accepted that they were wrong, but they said, oh, well, you've missed out that whole five-year period of carbon um, allocation. And I said, well, yes, that's financially expensive for us, but think what that's doing to the carbon um, you know, the carbon numbers for New Zealand, you know, this, because we've actually got a situation where it's theoretical being carbon green. It's actually on what the carbon we can count. So they're actually rejecting a whole lot. Bureaucrats are just making the job impossible, and that's why we're giving up losing hope. And I'm so pretty sure not... I'm pretty sure not one of those bureaucrats who, you know, uh, walked off that day would have missed filing in uh, their uh, reimbursements, be it for that coffee or that uh, the whole day or the fuel to get there. It's it's amazing how much money is being wasted. Uh, it's absolutely sickening the wastage that's going on to the point where we're actually focusing on trying to survive in a less cash economy, less money economy. And we're building a community around here. We're very much more on... on um, uh, building a community which barters things and swaps things rather than getting cash into the equation and, and we wouldn't want the IRD to uh, take too much focus on that but it's all, it's all I think, quite above board. Um, but I did threaten to go to Wellington and march up with some of these people and oh, we've had situations where that's happened before and I've been asked to gently keep right out of the way or I'd, I'd blow it. But these people have proven, when I mean, I've spoken to them, they've just got no idea whatsoever. They're the ones that need to be made to go hungry and cold. End of argument. Or they can mm -hmm. come out and see me. If they want the front hunt, they can come and see me. I'd welcome them. they take them out the back. And, and if they still keep wanting to argue, well, they can walk home. It's a bloody long way. There's a massive disconnection uh, between uh, some people in urban New Zealand, not all, a lot of people in urban New Zealand, and the realities of, of farming. And as we talked about last week on the show, um, the, the observation I make is that the the, the balance is it's out of balance. The, the, uh, the, the machinery of the country, the admin of the country through government and local government is just taking far too much of the uh, earnings capacity out of real people doing real stuff. Uh, and I don't know how we stop it, Mark, but uh, change of a change of government may help, but uh, that's not the whole answer. That government has got to actually stand tall and do what they know is right. No, you're quite right. Okay, so stage one, um, we need to back um, both national and act together. And stage two, that these characters have to be shown that they're not productive and they're con a lot of them are contractors. They're um, given no more contract. They're sold. That's it. That's the end of the job. And you're going to have to be cold and hungry. 
um, to realise where your income comes from and you've got to realise who pays your wages and you might have to go into, in, out into the economy, uh, out into the country, I mean, and actually face um, doing something productive. Interestingly, a friend of mine who's got a very highly qualified son um, was spending time in London recently, couldn't get a job, he's, he's got financial training, couldn't get a job in London um, in the finance area, which is unusual, so he's gone back to the fruits, he's out going back out, out into the country in, in, um, uh, in England and driving tractors because he couldn't get a job in finance. Well, that sort of thing's got to happen in, in Wellington sooner rather than later, um, and, and, and it could be that we've got to help that happen in a fairly unconventional way, but we won't elaborate that in public. We won't mm. warn them. I attended a, a meeting recently, you know, this was with uh, Fulton Hogan, and it was a public meeting, there's a whole lot of people there. So the gentleman in charge mentioned that if Fulton Hogan, they are, uh, you know, sort of assessing a project worth 50 million, he says 10%, five to seven million of that, at least he says is now what consents cost us. Yeah. And he said, we are doing a whole lot of partnerships and social licenses stuff that is feel good, but doesn't really add to the bottom line. But in his words, he said, we have to do this because we think we might as well spend money and time there because otherwise we spend it in litigation because, and there was a whole lot of people from local government there. He says, because you guys make it really hard for us. Yeah, well, actually my theory is that uh, the balanced payments situation is getting so dire that the incoming government might actually... Um, Think to impose a national state of emergency, and as I understand it, all of these rules go out the bloody window under a state of emergency. There be won't be any road cones. There be hovers only when you work around hot, um, heavy machinery. Common sense will rule, and bureaucrats will be down down the river like red tape. And you know, if we declare a state of emergency like a war, it'll be those who have the capability to get get the job done, and those people that stand in the way will become basically just steamroller fodder. Isn't that interesting, Mark, how um, New Zealand farmers have lifted their game so much uh, uh, since 85, since uh, 84, 85, when you started uh, their production and their product productivity, um, doing more with less or the same, is outstanding. And of course, those uh, people we're just talking about know that every year we've got a bit of a, a problem to, to meet our commitments. We'll just do better. And if you see the figures for this year, uh, we've got goods uh, exports from farms have increased 7 billion to 73 billion. Uh, at the same time, we've just had our fourth um, quarter of deficits. So I think the worst current account deficit ever in New Zealand, 33 billion. So the harvest from the environment is paying all the bills. At the same time, these very people are telling us we're using the environment too much. I put it to you. Who is putting the pressure on the environment? Who is putting the most pressure on the environment? It's not the people you're selling to. It's happening by our own people in suits. Oh, actually, you know what? The, the biggest enemy or the, the greatest pollution uh, is people on those terrible big bloody feedlots called cities. And, and if they <laughs> had consent to have that many people in a, consent, in a small area, I think we should turn it around and make all cities and governments have to put a resource consent to live in a city and, and learn to move out the country and be productive. Now, that's one area that we could play them their own game. Um, you know, and, and clearly, we're going to have to incentivise exports and wallop the people who just think, oh, we can just buy a whole new bloody iPhone because last, last week's models are a bit out, out of favour. Um, 
we, we, we've got to have a real economic crash whereby uh, those people who generate foreign exchange and for the country are well rewarded and not penalised. Um, you know, perhaps we should, and I it would be a tricky one now, we've got a frozen dollar. Perhaps we go back to the days when we had overseas funds. Um, farmers who generate income can have the money offshore, and um, that might that might make people stop, sit up and think a little bit. And I'm not saying just farmers, primary producers, there are some exporters as well on the same boat. But people just don't seem to understand the basics of economics, that you if you keep spending more than you earn, eventually you'll go hungry and get sold up. And yeah, yeah. all the other things are starting on that one. Yeah. And there's nothing like an economic reality check. And uh, boy, are we facing that 40%. Uh, they say it's a 40-year high farm inflation right now. So you gentlemen, you know, you've, you've lived through it. And we are back. Does it, do you see, feel a sense of deja vu, either of you, Don, Mark, that where are we farming back again in New Zealand? Well, in terms of the inflation, because mm. I'm a, I said, you know, I, I survived the 80s. I learned mm. to survive that by not spending. When it was too dear, I said, no, I'm not buying it. End of argument. And I'd keep the old one and I'd straighten it and repair things. And, and you know, we've cut, we've, we cut right back on fertilizer. Um, you know, and the, we go, oh, we've got some thistles. We're not going to spray them. Too expensive. We're not going to put that extra crop in the finished stock. It wasn't worth it last spring with the cost of diesel and tractors. Um, you know, employing extra labour to, to get a bit more productivity. Nah, we're just not going to do it. Um, you know, there are uh, interest rates is a real pain. We're lucky we're not probably too exposed, but you know, we've gone from sort of two and a half, three percent, which was very cheap money, I might add, to say seven or eight percent in within six or eight months. Now that's hurting a lot of people I know, and that's going to continue to hurt. So I think the only way to bring these people um, to their senses, and I'm sorry, but it's it's reality. Um, hunger and start, hunger and cold. End of argument. Once you're cold and hungry, you'll work harder. You know, I know that's harsh, and, and I'll probably get shot for it. But hey, it's reality. Well, I, I certainly know uh, that that going through the '80s does um, still sit with me um, in my th thought process. I do waste a bit of money nowadays because I sort of don't. I'm not really farming anymore, but. Um, yeah, I think the the biggest thing, the biggest lesson I had out of the '80s was not to invest in machinery uh, that you didn't need. Um, make sure you use contractors more. I know that that's uh, perhaps not possible in your neck of the woods, but um, I I was so tempted to buy machinery. To God, I saw neighbours buying machinery, and I was desperate to have this machinery. No, we just tolerated the old one till about 1999, sort of thing, and. That's that was the saviour. If I'd bought metal, I would have been on my ear and out the gate gone. Um, I think that my great mentor and, and, and accountant for virtually all my life, um, he's still, we're starting to push him into a bit of well retirement, Peter Alexander in Christchurch, because he calls it heavy metal or iron disease. And the beauty mm. of using a contract is you look at it and go, oh, gee, that's expensive. Bugger that. I'm not going to do that again. So you don't do it. Go, I'm not going to put that crop in. Whereas if you've got all your own gear, and yes, I've got a bit of our own gear because I buy it the cheaper, small stuff at clearing sales and patch it using, using our own mild engineering skills. But, um, you know, each, each to their own. Um, but I see some people just spending so much money and, and um, it's not the interest bill they have to worry about. It's the paying it back and it's the depreciation on it. I mean, 
I see a hell of a lot of people borrowing money to buy depreciating assets to try to prove, to prove how wealthy they are. And that doesn't tell you in my view, but I'm, I'm probably too old school. And people grizzle at me, oh, that, that, save 50 cents, save 50 cents. Oh, it's only 50 cents. But I said, yeah, but when I was young, I saved 50 cents. Every 50 cents saved was a pine tree. That's 150 bucks now, or it normally is. So, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, cost of money is something that in the last 10 or 15 years people probably get a bit lax about. They don't understand the rule of 72. Um, the rule of 72 is if you decide, divide 72 by the interest rate you're paying, or might, that'll tell you how many years it's going to take for your debt to double. So many people don't understand that concept. Oh, that's that's music to my ears. Yeah, so many people don't understand that. And I feel very, you know, small in stature next to you two guys farming careers. But I, I've been here 14 into 15 years in New Zealand. I remember in 2009 coming in, the minimum wage was $13.25. I started at $13.50. Today, with the way, you know, they have moved on the median wage and so on, for anyone who comes out on a work visa, say like me, and then obviously it spreads across the industry because you can't have one worker at this level, one at another. It's $29 plus holiday pay. So there's something like $32 an hour. Now the milk price hasn't gone up that much, but your wages have gone up two and a half times. FERT is up 400% from the time I did accounts for our first boss in Otrohonga, circa 2009 to 2014. There is not a lot falling out at the bottom, and yet we have our ministers waxing lyrical about how well the food and fiber sector is doing, how well the commodity prices are doing. Let's do a little more, you know, uh, talk about, uh, do a little more work on our methane or carbon emissions, and we will be able to sell our story. Well, if you can't bloody sell it now, then God help us. Seriously. Yeah, um, I think there's, um, the concept of economic wisdom is, is, is very lacking in, in New Zealand politics at the moment. And, and I, you know, uh, I, I just struggle. I mean, tell me, how many people on the front page of, front bench of Cabinet now have actually ever done a PAYE or a GST return? I just don't think they understand business. I don't think, and I think their calculators have been too. I just don't think they get there. I just can't understand how they think it would work. But that's right, we're going to solve that in October. <laughs> yeah, well, we are. And, you know, the strange thing about uh, Jaspreet, going back to your comment then, uh, farmers aren't like other businesses that just close down and go over go overseas. I mean, it has happened before, like, uh, for instance, South African farmers went to Western Australia or came to New Zealand. Uh, but not you don't often see New Zealand farmers leaving here, shutting down and moving their business somewhere else. And farms going to rack and ruin. Someone always comes in and, and buys them and does something with them, sometimes for the better, actually. Uh, but that's the thing. We're, we're captive in our own country. Uh, we're not going to be, um, we're not going to move our capital elsewhere easily. So we're sort of a captive audience to to the um, to the executive um, powers. And But it is about respect. And they, I think it's time uh, the disconnection that's been almost encouraged since the year 2001 when the Dirty Dairying campaign got underway by Fish and Game and others, uh, that division that created, that disconnected, that created. It's time that we got our respect back and we were allowed to regain our mojo and feel good about um, the stuff we do. And I think listening to, to Mark, clearly Mark's been a, um, a fighter, a battler, and you've tried to stay above it. You just just move on through is what I think I'm getting from you, Mark. You just move on through. Well, I think there's 
time for um, Dewey rather than Huey. And basically, um, you know, there's one people, one way to people bring people to their senses, that's make them a bit lean and hungry. And, and, and there's, you know, people in the cities think, oh, no, it's all right, you know, I can sell this and sell that. But, but they must be made to realise where does the money come from, um, which, you know, imports the goods that they want to live on. And I think a lot of people do realise that, but I still think there's a lot that don't. Um, and we can tell, we've been trying to tell them, they don't want to listen. So we'll, I think actions will speak rather words. If we stop spending, which is what farmers are doing now, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to field days. I didn't go, I, oh, this is the first year I didn't go to the central district field days. Um, I think our, we're buying very, very little at the moment. I've put the handbrake on spending, no new items, cut back on a lot of inputs simply to make sure that we balance the budget and, um, you know, and, and, and we keep our banking arrangements. Um, you know, we don't want the bank saying, oh, you spent too much because that's the next thing that's going to happen. Um, and all of a sudden they're going to go, oh, not much tax take. And the other thing that they haven't worked out is that when you plant a block in forestry, you get no income for 25 years. So there's going to be no tax from that. And the other thing they've overlooked is that even though it's in carbon, and after four or five years, you might be able to sell some carbon credits, you can't, gen you can't um, generate foreign exchange out of carbon credits because it's all within New Zealand transaction. So hang in there, farmers. Hang in there to the productive sector. Trim your sales. Only essential spending. Listen to Peter Alexander's wisdom and pull the handbrake on another two notches on expenditure. But you know, at the end of the day, farmers can live well you know, we can plant, we can put the plough on and plant our own spuds. We live well on, you know, we grow our own food. Um, you know, luck, most farmers hopefully keep away from the three waters concept. I've lost track of where that is. We harvest our own rainwater, our own spring water. We dig our own septic tanks and um, we, we just need to keep independent of bureaucracy, if possible, and be prepared to put up a big, big, um, a big gate to stop them getting onto the property if we have to. And with that, listeners, I think that's a very good time to uh, to end this hour with Mark Warren. Um, it's been great to have you, Mark. You're an enthusiast. Uh, you've done a lot in your life. You're entrepreneurial. Um, it's a it's it's great to have you on um, Greenwashed, and um, we may have to get you back, perhaps after October. <laughs> I'll see what happens then. Oh well, that's great chatting. Thanks very much. Thanks yeah, for no, listening. Thank I'll you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't believe in packaging it too politely if it needs to, you know, that the greatest thing you can do if someone's an idiot is to, is to um, explain to them sooner rather than later so they get a chance to change their ways. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, listeners, that was Mark Warren, farmer from Bapari Station, Central Hawks Bay. For anyone who is a keen off-roader, uh, off his book is Many a Muddy Morning, Stories from a Life Off-Road and On the Land. Thank you so much. But today, how to survive high interest rates and a downturn in the economy. More to the point than just playing in the mud. So, yeah, <laughs> multi-use book. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark. Just Breed Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And that was a show for this morning. Thank you so much for joining Don and me. Keep those emails and texts coming. We really appreciate them. Our number is 2057 or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Our website, www.realitycheck.radio, now also has a web shop online. 
live. So if you're looking for some RCR branded gear, hoodies, t-shirts, shopping bags, have a look. And finally, to wrap up, who better than the Canadian psychologist, Jordan Peterson, who in his inimitable and almost prophetic way, seven months ago, put together the snippet of a podcast outlining exactly the state we are in now, and especially Europe, UK, with what you're supposed to think, eat, the energy crisis, so on and so forth. So have a listen and have a great rest of the day. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Let's turn our attention to the claim that animal husbandry and the meat it produces cheaply enough for everyone to afford is unsustainable. For a moment, because we haven't yet dispensed with enough moralizing and authoritarian stupidity. Remember what happened the last time that government agencies applied their tender mercy to determining what the people they serve should consume? We were offered the much vaunted food pyramid, telling us to eat six to 11 servings of grains and carbohydrates a day with protein and fat at the pinnacle something to be indulged in with comparative rarity, if indeed necessary at all. That all turned out to be wrong, and not just a little wrong, but so wrong that it might as well have been not just wrong, but a veritable anti-truth, something as wrong as it could possibly get. The food pyramid was brought into being not least by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that is, by marketers, not scientists or nutritionists with no shortage whatsoever of lobby efforts by those whose products ended up being promoted. The dietary recommendation to prioritize carbohydrates produced a veritable epidemic of obesity and diabetes, resulting in what has been deemed by reliable researchers as one of the worst public health disasters of all time, dooming almost the entire Western population to a lifetime of catastrophic chronic health problems. 42% of Americans are obese. Another almost equally large percentage are overweight. At least a third are in the early or later stages of diabetes, which is an exceptionally serious disease. $1.7 trillion is spent annually on chronic illness in the U.S. And the rise in such illness and cost is directly associated with the beginning of the godforsaken top-down dietary guidelines that set us all on a carbohydrate-heavy dietary pathway. There have been, in addition, dozens of studies debunking the claim that red meat causes disease. The PURE study, P-U-R-E, published in the journal Lancet in 2017, analyzing 140,000 individuals from 18 countries, revealed that Quote, higher carbohydrate intake, not meat and fat, note, was associated with an increased risk of total mortality and that, quote, higher saturated fat intake was associated with lower risk of stroke. Lower. That is exactly the opposite of what we have been told by the beneficial centralizing agents who task themselves with determining what we as sovereign and responsible individuals should put in our mouths. So the health benefits of a pure vegetarian and vegan diet are dubious at best. But what of the argument that animal husbandry is killing the planet? Well, 
the American Environmental Protection Agency estimates that all farming produces only 11% of greenhouse gases in the U.S. Transportation produces 27%. Livestock accounts for 3%. And plant-based agriculture? 5%. According to the National Academy of Sciences, if we eradicated all animal-based agriculture, we'd reduce greenhouse gases by a mere 2.6%. And it is no simple matter, by the way, and perhaps impossible to manage a diet that is sustainable in the medium to long term by merely dining on plants. Chew on that. Ex hodos, the pathway forward. What might we do instead if we chose to be genuinely wise instead of inflicting want and privation upon the world's poor while failing utterly and disastrously to save the planet. We could begin by assuming here in the West that all those frightened into paralysis and enticed into tyranny by their apprehension of the pending apocalypse have bitten off more than they can properly chew, have taken on a dragon much more fire-breathing and dire than they are heroic, have failed entirely to contend with the moral hazard that comes in assuming that the faddish emergency of their overheated imaginations entitles them to the use of power and compulsion. If your apprehension of the looming catastrophe, whatever its form, has made you into a terrified authoritarian, willing to frighten and compel to get your way, you are simply not the right leader for the times as the unconscious manifestations of your own nervous system, telling you that you are just too small for the job at hand are clearly indicating, even to you. We could begin by dropping our appalling attitude of moral superiority toward the developing world. We could admit instead that the rest of the planet's inhabitants have the right and the responsibility to move toward the abundant material life that we have enjoyed despite ourselves for the last century and which has been so entirely dependent on industrial activity and fossil fuel usage. We could work diligently and with purpose to drive energy and food prices down to the lowest level possible so that we can ease the burden on the poor and open up the horizons of possibility so that they become concerned as they inevitably and properly will with long-term sustainability instead of acting desperately and destructively in pursuit of their next meal. We could concentrate on an intelligent plan of stewardship instead of anti-human environmentalism, along the lines of the plans outlined by multifaceted and diligent experts such as Dr. Bjorn Lomberg, who pointed out years ago that we have a multitude of crises facing us, and not just one, the hypothetically apocalyptic danger of carbon, and that we could spend the money we are wasting killing poor people in a much more intelligent and judicious manner, devoting some resources, for example, to ensuring a stable food supply to poor children in the developing world, treating malaria, something we can do and cheaply, and delivering fresh water where it is truly needed. We could as well work out the details of a truly sustainable agriculture with the most expert farmers to improve the quality of our soil and air 
and provide everyone with enough high-quality food, which will most definitely involve animal-based agriculture. We could bring a halt to the presumption that the state should extend itself by dint of its hypothetical moral superiority to the governance of how we heat our houses and feed and provision our own families. We could, finally, delegate authority to the most local possible of levels, following the principle of subsidiarity, and produce a hierarchy of responsibility that extends necessary purpose to everyone individually at the family and community and state level, and that serves as a necessary bulwark against the blind and Luciferian, prideful, intellect-based, top-down tyrannies of emergency and compulsion that will otherwise necessarily reign. We could work out our concerns with sustainability through consensus and in the spirit of voluntary association and free play instead of relying on top-down edicts justified in principle by our misplaced existential terror and carrying with them the moral hazard of the accrual of unjustified and dangerous centralized authority. We could distribute to everyone their requisite responsibility as sovereign actors and could bring them on board with the power of a common vision, one of life more abundant, enough high-quality food for everyone, enough energy so that slavery becomes a thing of the past, enough purpose so that nihilism and decadence no longer beckon, enough reciprocity so that we live in true peace, the generous provision of education and opportunity to everyone in the world, the conviction, to say it again, that policy based on compulsion is misguided and counterproductive. We could thereby have our cake and eat it too, and so could everyone else. And we could work toward that in a mutual spirit of productive generosity and fair play in competition and cooperation. Or we could let the world go to hell in a handbasket, blame that disintegration on the very enemies we specified as causal in the first place, those damned capitalists, and fail to clean up our own souls as we persecute the imaginary wrongdoers responsible for the destruction of our planet. Identifying the real danger. As the psychologist Carl Jung said in the aftermath of the Nazi atrocities and the use of nuclear weapons, quote, it is becoming more and more obvious that it is not starvation, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself who is mankind's greatest danger. For the simple reason that there is no adequate protection against psychic epidemics, which are infinitely more devastating than the worst of natural catastrophes. That great man knew that technological man had a stark choice in front of him to become as ethical as he had become powerful and that a real hell awaited if we refused the challenge. The rate of change is accelerating. Our ability to do almost everything is doubling faster and faster. As our ability to communicate and to compute accelerates, the consequence of our inner disunity and insufficiency become ever more serious. As we become individually more powerful, in other words, we must take on more responsibility or else. If we fail to rectify our personal pathologies of pride, envy, and the willingness to lie, 
we will find ourselves mired in conflict with the world, both natural and social, and in precise proportion to our refusal to check the devil within. So, we have a stark choice in front of us. We can reorient ourselves to the cause of truth, or we can act out the conflict, imposing our self-serving instrumental delusions on the world, bringing about in that manner an external apocalypse that will result in precisely the same judgment. And so, in conclusion, it's time for all of us, but especially the self-righteous moralizers, to get our individual acts together, to take on some real moral responsibility instead of falsely broadcasting unearned virtue far and wide and so cheaply and carelessly. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.